Welcome to episode 8 of the AWS What's Next podcast, in which hosts Nick Walsh and Robert Zhu share the latest news and launches from Amazon Web Services. This episode features Amazon Interactive Video Service, IVS, Amazon DeepRacer Evo, and AWS Copilot. All right. Hello, everybody. I would typically say welcome back because uh, we have a lot of familiar viewers on the on the channel here on both LinkedIn and Twitch where we stream to. But I know that we have quite a few new audience members for the first time this week. This show is called AWS What's Next. It's a show from us here at Amazon Web Services, the technology arm over at Amazon, to talk a little bit about some of the latest launches that we have. Uh, but you're probably wondering why this may be relevant to you, because many people watching may not be software developers themselves. Rob, why don't we introduce ourselves really quickly and sort of give people the lay of the land here for this show? Yeah, I'm Robert Zhu. I'm a developer advocate for Amazon Web Services, and I'm one of the co-hosts of the show. Yeah, and uh, my name is Nick Walsh. We're really excited to host this show. Largely us uh, as our jobs, we, we are software developers that help to make this technology that AWS builds more applicable and more, more uh, relatable for not just general audiences, but for software practitioners themselves. We're alluding to a lot of things that will, will I think, make a lot of sense very quickly as to, as to why you might be seeing this. In past episodes, we've covered a lot of different things from databases to new forms of virtual servers. But AWS builds a lot of very exciting pieces of technology. Uh, and this week, we have some ones that we think you will particularly enjoy. I don't want to tease things too much. So Rob, why don't, we, uh, why don't we let people know what they're in for in today's episode? Yeah, we have this joke that uh, every episode, we, we establish new heights in terms of the excitement of the announcements. But this one, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat that old cliche. Today, we're talking about AWS IVS. I feel like I don't even want to spoil this, but for all of you Twitch viewers, this is going to be especially exciting, especially relevant. We're going to be diving deep on the tech that powers Twitch and how it can enable you to launch your own channel. This is some really exciting stuff, and I can't wait to get into it. We have some really special guests, the foremost experts on the topic, so I, I can't wait. Nick, you want to talk about uh, DeepRacer Evo? Yeah, exactly. So. Uh Topic one, obviously, IVS, uh, Interactive Video Service. But topic two will be something that's exciting for, I think, everybody. We're going to talk about AWS Deep Racer. This is an autonomous machine learning powered RC car, essentially, where you can train your own machine learning model for, for autonomous driving, load it onto this vehicle, and then see how it performs. There have been some really exciting changes for uh, things of the model like object avoidance and the ability to use 3D depth sensing. I know that may sound very technical, but I promise we'll, we'll uh, make it a lot more clear in that session itself. And as is typical with this show, we, we, we run with three announcements. So Rob, I know we have a third one that'll be coming up after Deep Racer. Yeah, and that is AWS Copilot. So if you're using AWS or if you're, you've been you know, software infrastructure for the last couple of years, you're probably working with containers, you've heard of containers. And if you're on AWS especially, you know, you've probably heard of some of our offerings with ECS and Elastic Container Service, Elastic EKS, Elastic Kubernetes Service. Well, you know, the space is getting kind of complicated and it's some, sometimes difficult to make a quick decision about what the best infrastructure is. And we've constantly been building tooling around that to make your lives a little bit easier. And, th and that is the next step that we want to talk about with AWS Copilot. Awesome. Well, without further ado, because I, I figured this first section may take us quite a while to get through. We have a lot to talk about in it. I figured we could introduce our first guest for Amazon IVS. That is Martin Hess, 
GM of Amazon IVS, Martin. Marty, what do you prefer? I want to say thank you for joining us, but uh, tell, tell everyone a little bit about <laughs> uh, what you do. Uh, thank you, Nick. Most people call me Marty. Okay, awesome. Um, <laughs> so, uh, GM of Amazon IVS. Now, th- that's a lot to unpack there, and, and there's, there's, a, there's a lot of work you've done to make this launch possible. But let's start as high level as possible. What is Amazon IVS? IVS stands for Interactive Video System, and it's an end-to-end video system intended for live interactive experiences. So if you go to Twitch, you're on Twitch right now. Uh, if you were a broadcaster, you would use OBS typically, but maybe something else. And when you start that broadcast, you hand it off to a video system. It goes across the network, it goes to servers, the servers do things to that video and it gets it out to the rest of the world. You could build that with a lot of different pieces could build it from scratch and build each of those pieces yourself. But however you do it, it's a pile of work. It's years of work and very large team. And what we've done is we've packaged all of that up, essentially the system that powers Twitch today, and turned it into an AWS service. And that's Amazon IVS. Uh, it's available today. It's you know pay as you go. Uh, it works just it, as well as Twitch works. So if you like Twitch, if you're happy with Twitch, you will, you will be happy with IBS. Yeah, now, yeah you, you mentioned a lot there that it's a lot of work. And, and one thing that I really appreciate is not only is it a lot of work, even after all that work, there's no guarantee that the results is actually going to deliver the performance that you want. Yes, absolutely. We, we got to be honest. The internet was not designed for live video. Live video is shoehorned onto something that it's not really uh, intended to do. And it requires so much work to deal with all of the, the problems the real world throws at it. And so if you, as programmers, we all know that you know, we spend you know, more of our time dealing with the exceptional case than, than the, uh, the happy case, the happy path. But with live video, it's almost all unhappy path. <laughs> and to learn what all these unhappy paths are, it just takes years of experience. And so, you know, this got started all oh, 11 years ago, and it's been year after year of more great people learning how to deal with all of these problems the internet throws at you. And so that's why today, you, you know, if you go to Twitch, it's like, works very reliably. And that's, uh, that's from years of experience. Yeah. One thing I was going to say, and this is, this is probably something that a lot of folks could use a little refresher on. When we talk about something being vended as a service, maybe we could provide a little context there. So many folks have probably heard of something called cloud computing. This is largely the move from having to manage your own physical data center and your own servers to having another vendor who can do that at scale with high performance like AWS uh, to do that so you can virtually vend yourself as you want, on demand, pay as you go, a lot of the, the concepts you just spoke to. Now, if I'm understanding this correctly, IVS with being the the technology that powers Twitch is essentially the ability for developers to go and build their own platform that looks however they want it to be, to moderate however they want, but with the the battle-hardened technology that you've developed at the Twitch. Battle-hardened video technology. Uh, Twitch has to deal with, you know, just surprise things that happen. All of a sudden, you have a, a, a stream that started off with 10 people and now has a million-plus people on it, and it happens in seconds. These are things that you don't get good at unless you have to actually fight these battles. 
And these are the kinds of things that uh, we've built into the system and it's available to everybody. And so you can build this for any, any use case that uh, you see fit. The exciting thing for me is I'm a big fan of live interactive video. I believe in it. I came to Twitch seven years ago because I had spent almost an entire year obsessing over watching Twitch. And I couldn't figure out why. It's like, what is so cool about a live interactive video experience? And I couldn't put my finger on it, but I knew it was something that was innately human. Humans like to be in the presence of something happening right now. And they like to be able to affect that. They want to be part of that. And Twitch offered that, and I was like, okay, I have to join this. I want to be part of this. And so when I look at this, I think, wow, we now can enable people to build all sorts of other kinds of domains. So think of all the other places on the internet besides gaming where this would be great. And this is, this is what we're hoping to spark, is just a revolution in new things that people would do with this. Martin, I think you hit the nail on the head. There is something electric about that live human-to-human interaction. I remember the moment for me, I was watching a, a voice actor for a video game that I loved, and he had a Twitch stream going on with 50 viewers. And he was taking requests. You could post a quote and say, say this quote in the voice of this character. And I asked him to say something, and he did it. And I was like, wow, that's, yes. that's incredible, right? It's the, it, and I think that's one of the things that makes that live communication, especially on Twitch, really, really powerful. It's the fact that and we have this going on right now. We have all these people in chat. You can ask questions, by the way. We're not, we're not trying to talk at you, right? This is, a, this is itself a bonafide Twitch stream. We're live. So if you have any questions, we've got the experts on the stage here. Let us know what you want to know, and we'll ask them. One of the things that has surprised me a lot when it comes to sort of this consumers of the Twitch platform, like people who stream, uh, like the content creators, viewers, myself, Robert, you know, Marty, you too, is the amount of, of the, the, the technical side of Twitch that people end up getting to know over the years, even, even without them being software developers themselves, you know, things like understanding the latency of when your streamer, you as a streamer do something and when you're, it shows up to your audience. Like these are tangible experiences that, that we all deal with and we interact with. So we appreciate it, even if we don't always understand how that sort of happens under the hood. But, you know, you said you joined seven years back for folks that have been following Twitch's story for a very long time. Was it Twitch at that point? Was it still Justin TV? I don't quite remember when the uh, transition uh, happened. I think it, it became Twitch, I believe, nine years ago. Hopefully somebody more knowledgeable join us and answer that question. I believe I started watching Twitch about a year into Twitch's existence, and then I watched Twitch for a solid year before I said, you know, I have to be part of it. The, um, one of the things that we're particularly proud of about this system is how quickly you can integrate it into anything you already have today. We've had people tell us that they had live video up and working in their existing web app or... Um, uh, mobile app in less than an hour. And that's just stunning. That is so fast. And that gives you a global reach. It gives you, um, you know, a managed service. You know, we're, we're watching playback. We're making sure people can watch correctly. We're making sure we'll let you know if your broadcast has problems. You know, we have the information. And we're paying attention. If there's some little um, problem somewhere on the internet, we're on top of it. We're dealing with it. If uh, one method to get to your audience isn't working, 
we're on top of it, we're getting to your audience a different way. This is all transparent to you. All you have to do is write a little bit of code and, and now you're live. It's, uh, I, I can attest to that firsthand. The service is generally available now, which means that uh, any folks can sign into the, their AWS account and start building with it. But I, I got a little bit of an exclusive sneak peek earlier on. There was an internal hackathon, essentially like a computer programming competition, marathon, what have you, to, to build cool demos on, on some of the earlier prototypes uh, or closer to launch of, of, of interactive video service. Uh, and, and that I can definitely attest to that. The idea of, you know, this endpoint, this programming interface, essentially, that software developers are used to working with all the time, you can essentially create a stream. You can, you can pass a call to it and get a stream endpoint back with stream keys and create, essentially, the stream platform almost instantaneously or the, the hardest infrastructure that IVS deals with. But I think I would be remiss uh, if I didn't bring into the fold someone who, who is also very familiar with that hackathon uh, and largely a, a much broader story that I think we're alluding to here. I'm not going to spill the beans on who it is because I want to talk a little bit about the story of, you know, even before IVS was maybe conceptualized, the broader partnership between Twitch and Amazon. Uh, we are joined, as a lot of folks can see because they see the overlay here, Emmett Shear, the CEO of Twitch. Emmett, uh, I know you are a very busy person, but thank you for taking the time out to, to talk with us today and to talk with the, with, with the community. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, it's always exciting to get to chat with people who you know, care about Twitch and uh, want to build cool stuff. Welcome to the show, Emmett. Yeah, so... Um, We've been talking about IVS, and and you know this is very exciting to us. Uh, Rob and I are software developers. We're geeking out over this, and the ideas are floating around with what can be built with this. But I think the story really starts a lot further upstream than the naming of IVS or even uh, you know vending a service to other developers. This this starts with the story of Twitch, and there's no one else that knows that better than you, right? I don't even know how far to go back, so I'm really gonna kind of punt it to you. But when did even the the ideas of Twitch joining Amazon, the idea of a service to vend Twitch's tech, you know, where do we begin here? We were talking about whether or not we wanted to sell the underlying video system as a service before the Amazon acquisition. Twitch was started in 2011. Uh, we launched uh, the same day of E3 2011. And we really spent the first few years just trying to build stuff, just trying to get any traction at all. And, and growing the gaming service. But within a couple of years, it became clear we built something for our own use uh, that was pretty cool. And after the Amazon acquisition, I became pretty confident at some point we'd want to turn it into an AWS service because I knew we'd built something really special, um, something had taken in us a lot of effort, and it was time to, to turn that over. Now, I, uh, I didn't think it was going to happen actually this quickly. I was a uh, I was a little bit skeptical that we were going to be able to get it done and get it out there as fast as we did. But the team was really enthusiastic about it. I really thought they had something uh, important. And uh, I was very supportive of, of us giving it a shot. And we've really managed to run down all of the issues and, and get to the point where we can offer it to everyone. And I couldn't be more excited about that. Yeah, I mean, that, that seems like such a, a big sort of like bifurcation, right? Like... You, building of Twitch, there's so many challenges that come along with that from on the building of a platform, engaging with your community. 
Marty was hinting before that there's just so many challenges and edge cases that come up with the tech side. Was there very much like a Skunk Works project in the beginning to plan that potential, you know, vending of a service? Like, was it a, was it uh, something that lots of people at Twitch would have known about? Like, how did that evolution sort of happen? In the beginning, it was very much just a small team of people with Marty trying to figure out what to do. But you might have noticed uh, Amazon has Amazon Live. And the interest from the Amazon Live team was actually the very first moment where we were like, oh, we really have, we have a customer internally. Somebody wants this. And if we worked with them, maybe they could use it. And so actually, we, it really started out working with Amazon Live, which is doing live streaming around shopping and the Amazon experience and realizing, oh, this is, we've actually built something that other people really could use. It's made a big difference to them. And us being, having that validation gave us the confidence to keep investing uh, keep skunk working the project, I suppose, and build it out to the point where we were ready to make a, the big investment to actually turn it into a full AWS service. I mean, so you mentioned that this was an idea that had started even before the acquisition, and then later on you iterated with internal customers. Based on what we're seeing today in the general availability launch and the ideas you had or that you and the team had way back when, nine years ago or seven years ago when Martin joined, what are some of the major changes that have happened? Is, is, the, is what we're seeing today mostly the intact vision? Or you know, what are some of the paths that it's taken and some adjust, adjustments um, that you've had to make? It's pretty much the vision we started with. I would say the, the biggest thing that we, we haven't done yet that I, uh, that I hope we get to doing eventually is uh, really giving just even more flexibility around exactly what what trade-offs you make for latency. Um, we have some, we have a good deal of flexibility there. I think it's a really cool package, but I think there's we're going to see demand for people who want to be able to do really high quality transcodes or really low quality transcodes and you know beyond what we've done and we we decided we'd start with the settings we started with, but I think we'll cover 90% of the use cases because we didn't know what the 10% would be and exactly where we'd see what customers needs were and we decided we better it was better to get it out there, see how customers used it. And then iterate from there. But uh, I think there's, there's going to be, we're going to have a whole spectrum of options there over time um, that we haven't even invented yet. Yeah, I, I want to go back to one of the instances you named before, which was uh, after the Amazon acquisition and, and the use of uh, Amazon Live or AWS Live. A lot of folks may have seen this, but they didn't know that's what it was called. So on Amazon.com, the, the retail platform, there are oftentimes live video broadcasts for certain products and services. It, it's almost like the like the online shopping channel, I guess you could say, where, where people broadcast stuff like that. And so uh, when you said this was an internal customer, this was more than just you know MVPs or prototyping. This was the live service on Amazon.com was essentially the test bed for a lot of what became IVS or what IVS eventually became. It's really cool. There's so much more we can do with Amazon Live too. I wanted to make, I want to make it more like QVC where we have the 24/7, you know, the infomercial style. Hey, buy you know 100 piece Tupperware set and we'll throw in this, you know, yeah, whatever, 100 more pieces. <laughs> That's right. Well, I you know, I really like that. I don't know if people here saw it, Twitch sells out. One of the uh, events we ran around Prime Day one time was Twitch sells out, which was a Twitch style QVC, and it was really fun. I actually really enjoyed watching uh, watching that programming, and I think uh, a lot of other people did too. And I think we're still at the very beginning of what you can invent with live video. It's just been so hard. It's been so hard to build live video stuff that the next level of innovation on top of that hasn't happened as much because you just get stuck trying to get it to work at all. 
And I think IBS is going to unlock a bunch of new use cases. When we looked at, you know, where we think usage from live video is going to come from, you know, obviously there's a lot of people doing live video already. And there's a lot of companies and startups that are, that are building live video products. And we think they should be customers. But what I'm most excited about and what we, we thought is the really big potential for IBS is all the things that you couldn't build without having this work done already. And I'm, I'm most excited about that. I want to see what people can invent now that it's easy to wire up live video. Absolutely. I, I love this comment in the in, in chat. AWS has a retail platform. Yes, Amazon is the AWS retail arm. <laughs> so, I mean, it wouldn't be a Twitch show unless we, we toss some questions at you from chat. I mean, are you okay with that? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. Okay. So we have Git Gene, friend of the show. And as, if I understand correctly, Gene, you're, you're still at Riot. Uh, so... Uh, Gene is, uh, does DevRel for Riot. Riot games, of course, makers of League of Legends and many other awesome games now. At any given time, a significant percentage of Twitch traffic. And, and I think Gene and a couple of other folks in chat are wondering, what was the thinking behind the pricing structure for IBS? Um, you know, and one of the questions here is, you know, why is the input pricing for standard costs 10 times basic streams? I mean, can you talk about that? So to understand that, we kind of have to understand the underlying you know, computation that drives IBS. The really expensive part of taking a stream in is not the bandwidth to pull it in, but the transcoding. Doing high quality transcoding in real time takes a lot of compute. Um, and we dedicate a huge amount of compute to making sure we get great quality transcodes when you send us a stream. But that just costs money. And so there's an intrinsic sort of price associated with doing a standard stream. Basic streams skip that. Uh, you don't get the advantages of having multiple transcode qualities, which is really important for viewers who have lower quality connections, but you do save all the money. Um, we wanted to make that trade-off available to all of the customers. But uh, uh, unfortunately, I think there will be, there will always be a cost to doing transcoding well, especially if you want to do it in real time for high quality video. Yeah, I think we'll, uh, we'll uh, drill down on some of those, uh, the technical minutiae when we, when we bring Marty back on in a little bit. And, and I, I, one thing to let everyone in the audience know, we're actually going to see a demo, a live demo with uh, using IVS in action. So uh, we, we tell you that it's easy to use, it's easy to get started, but uh, you don't have to take my word for it. You know, you'll hopefully be able to, to see that in action. We have another question. It's not necessarily IVS related, so, but I'll ask it anyway. Zio Delta is wondering, is there any chance of an Alexa skill for Twitch or like a first party Alexa integration? <laughs> um, I think that's an interesting question. We've, we've, we've obviously thought about it. We think about you know, how we've worked with the other groups at Amazon. We haven't yet seen the, the Alexa skill for Twitch that we've wanted to build and release yet, but it's something we continue to be excited about. And, you know, maybe at some point we wind up building an Alexa skill. I think uh, there's a lot of people out there with Alexas and a lot of those people are increasingly also Twitch customers. So maybe we find some overlap there. Yeah. Another thing uh, I was interested in, it's not necessarily a, a question on chat here, but uh, having played around with the IVS service myself, it's more than just the video. We were talking with Marty about this, this, this tangible nature of like being able to interact in real time and, and like syncing that to video content can be really important, right? If you can pass the video along, but people still need to be able to perform all these extra operations, that can be tough. You know, so when I think of things like Twitch, it's like if an event happens in chat, I want to sync that up with something that happens on my stream. That's really cool. Do we? Do you think we can, or developers can expect to get more features along that lines of being able to see like quality of life features that that maybe Twitch offers and that people like and, and may want on other platforms bundled into IVS at some point? 
Yeah, our, our ambition is to continue to improve IVS uh, every week. I think, you know, there's a, there's a trade-off as you're building something like IVS, trying to build out the entire complete set of features you'd love to have in theory versus getting something high quality and scalable into the customer's hands now. I think we did a good job picking a trade-off point for that. I think the product does a lot. Uh, and for many, many customers, it's going to be everything they need. But I also think there's a bunch of cool stuff you can do on Twitch. Uh, Clips comes to mind uh, as a feature that IBS doesn't yet support, but we'd like for it to support. And you know, over time, I think we'll be layering in more and more of those nice-to-haves or sometimes must-haves for certain use cases. It's going to expand what you can use IBS for. At, uh, at Amazon, we like to say that, or at AWS, we say that 90, 95% of the, the, the feature roadmap is driven by customer and user feedback. And, and I, I know lots of folks watching may not be software developers, but I think it's important to reiterate, like the version of IVS, interactive video service that launches today is just the first step, right? You know, this is not the, uh, what people will build on in its current iteration, but it will constantly evolve in response to that feedback. So it, if something is desired that is not there right now, you know, are, are, are you open to that feedback to drive that roadmap as well to, to sort of make IVS better for more folks? I think that's why we launched it when we did. We have a bunch of ideas for what we think are probably the best new features to add. But there's nothing like actually having people using the product uh, to get real insight into what are we going to do? Because those people are the ones who are actually in the field, actually using it. And they know way better than we can guess how we can improve IBS. So I'm, I'm really excited to start getting that feedback as people begin to use the service. Yeah, and one of the things I want to revisit briefly is, you know, Marty was mentioning all of the hard work that happens and how all of the edge cases you need to solve to get this experience that people see on twitch.tv today. A lot of that work is very, very detailed and it's subsurface. And I, I, I have a friend who was um, an early Twitch employee and he was, you know, sh- maybe sharing a little bit more about than he should have shared about just all of the infrastructure challenges that you were dealing with in the early days of Twitch and, and just how nuanced it became, how detailed it went. Maybe you can give us just one example of, you know, Marty, talked about you can assemble this thing yourself, but really you're in for a long road if you're going to build one of these. And so really the cost that we were talking about earlier, the fact that it is embedding all of this experience that you've had over the years of building Twitch, can you give us a sense of one of those deep problems that you've solved at the infrastructure level? So the thing to understand about the internet, I suppose, is that the, the image of it you were given if you took a course in college about networking is a lie. There isn't, there's a sort of idea with the internet is you, you connect to the internet and you then you send the information out, you send packets and you address them to the person and they get delivered and it all works. And that, that works to a point for very small amounts of data. Uh, if you don't need to have very tight latency requirements, if you don't, uh, need very tight deliverability requirements. But the truth is the internet is a wild west. It's very chaotic and you can't just buy internet service that delivers your packets reliably, quickly, all over the world. If you want that to happen, if you want the, to get the video from one side to the other reliably, at some level, you have to shepherd that packet all the way along every pipe it goes down and make sure that there's nothing in the way. And so I think one of the 
key challenges we solved along the way, this is one of the very first things we worked on, is how the Twitch network talks with other networks and how we choose to do the routing between the Twitch network, where the, we have our video coming in to us, and then choosing where do we hand it off to give it to Comcast or to give it to you know, AT&T or to give it to an intermediary that's going to hand it off? And how do you know where, where to put it? And the standard way to solve this problem historically on the internet, how do you set up kind of fixed pathways and, uh, and to choose fixed connections and say, have create systems of heuristics and rules that said, give this packet to this person if, it, if it's from this source. And what we did instead is we, we built a much more flexible system, a software system that could in real time react to network conditions and choose in response to us noticing, oh, there's a degraded connection over here, to route the packets in other ways um, and to change how our network connects to the rest of the internet. And that was a big challenge, but fundamentally improved our quality of service. And then it's a thousand more things like that, little things along the way that enable it to happen. And I'm really, you know, really grateful to, this isn't my area of expertise, actually. I didn't, I never been a network engineer. I don't, there's a whole set of expertise and depth there. I was really fortunate to have John Shippen on the team build out the original version of the video system. And then Marty and, and this huge number of other people come in and uh, help build that out because this is all a learning process for me through Twitch. I had no idea of how complicated the internet actually is before, before working on it, before getting educated by the team. Yeah, no, the internet is a, is a, is an unforgiving beast at times. I, a little bit unrelated, but to the same point of these like large challenges that push the boundaries of, boundaries of, of anyone that's come before you. I was reading this book about, um, you know, I think it was World of Warcraft, the, the dev- developer diaries. I, it's a game I grew up on and uh, that game has changed a lot. But I, I remember back then you installed the game with seven CDs and they all went into your computer and you had to swap them out over you know, hours and hours and hours. And, and in, in reading this developer diary book, uh, in the in the beginning, they open and say that at a certain point in time, I think before YouTube, that game's traffic and players comprised some ex- obscene percent of traffic on the internet, like like 40% or something at peak hours. And, and so that made, like the internet almost at a certain point was, was uh, you know, that was the biggest thing from a, from a networking infrastructure perspective on the internet. And then, you know, YouTube comes out and an on-demand video. And I think that something we're all finding today, uh, something like live, like video streaming, whether that's on-demand with something like Netflix or, or live video like Twitch, has become that new big infrastructure challenge. And, and in many ways, you are the pioneers. And, and Twitch had to pioneer that. There's no book you could open and be like, ah, yes, the, let's do it how they did it. Were there any, I, I don't know, you know, the extent of, of, of weird stories you, you can share, but were there any uh, <laughs> really funny gotcha moments where you, you expected something to work in a certain way and it just happened, you, you just happened to be like, oh, wow, I had no idea that was a bandwidth or a constraint or something. I got every, every single, we hit every constraint it was possible to hit, right? I think the biggest surprise to me was learning that ISPs had just limited total edge bandwidth. And it was possible to simply overwhelm an ISP's ability to ingest the video. Like you could just get to the point where that entire ISP's inbound pipe is filled and there's no, sorry, you're not, you're not going any farther there without figuring out some way to, to literally grow the size of the, of the network. And sort of because the internet, I think when you, when you're pushing less bandwidth, the internet feels it's so infinite in capacity. It's like the, I think the same way you go out in the ocean, it feels like the ocean is infinite. It's not really infinite. It's just very, very large. 
Um, and it feels like if you poured a cup of water in the ocean, you could pour infinite cups of water in the ocean and it would never raise, you know, change the, you couldn't possibly change the ocean. But it turns out if you poured enough of water in the ocean, of course, you could, you could raise it. And in the same way, if you put enough bandwidth out there, you find out the internet's very much finite. It's very much, it's got, it's got edges, it's got capacity limits, and you start hitting every single one of them. I think that was, that was very surprising when sort of actually to hit those limits. And it's, uh, it's been cool to see the team work around them. When you say that you hit those limits, those, did you hit those limits as Twitch or did you start experiencing some of those when it was still just in TV? As in, did you kind of ease into this or were these things that just kind of hit you like a wall? You hit, you hit more and more the bigger you get. So we hit some of them as just in TV. We hit more of them as, as Twitch. We hit more of them this year. Like just, just this year, you start, to, you start to run into new problems as we get to greater and greater scale. Especially when we were smaller, often we'd be in the situation where other people would have CDNs larger than ours. And so if we ran into trouble, we could kind of hit the escape hatch and try to go to a third party and maybe buy distribution from them. As we've gotten bigger and bigger, that's just not an option. We can't go buy from a third party because the third parties don't have, don't have any more bandwidth than we do. And so if we really start hitting, uh, hitting capacity limits, we've got to figure out how to actually solve the underlying problem. And that's a, that's a little scary because it means you, you're, it's really, it's up to you to fix it. But it's also been very empowering to realize that we, we can do this. We can build um, a network that is large enough that it really can accommodate for all of these, all these customers and all these peak usage. I have to run in a second, unfortunately, but uh, I think you probably have time for one more question. Given that this is the last question, let's do something a little forward-looking, right? If you could imagine, and this is like Amazon PRFAQ style writing, I, I suppose, but um, yeah. you know, if you could imagine IVS 10 years from now, right? Like if you could have a mission statement for anybody that this service can, can, can do something for, what would that be? What, what do you aspire for it to be? So IVS uh, is meant to let everyone else do what we got to do with Twitch by the good fortune of being able to raise enough money, have the right technical bandwidth, be in the right place at the right time to build out our own video network, to remove that barrier and let people all over the internet innovate with video, whatever they can imagine. And so I think, you know, if I had a 10 year statement, it would be to radically simplify anything involving video and, and interaction into something where the part that the customer has to solve, uh, that the, the you know, IVS customer, the developer has to solve is the new part. And people are no longer resolving how do you stream video? How do you archive video? How do you pipe interactions around? How do you clip a piece of a video? How do you take a uploaded video and add it to a live stream video? Like those are solved problems that have been solved dozens of times by companies around the world, but they haven't been solved generally. And we want to build something that lets you, lets a, a developer build whatever they can invent. And right now, I think if what you want, you can have it in any color as long as it's black. If what you want is a live video streaming solution for putting in live video in and taking it out we've got you like to a lot of people with the latency requirements we have we have made that radically simple simpler and it's something that anyone around the world can use 
But there's so many more video use cases that that doesn't necessarily address. And I think there's an opportunity for us to make all of those just as radically simple. You've got a lot of viewers in chat right now. Is there anything you want to tell them before you have to head out? Um, you know, thanks for dropping by. And I think we've got some awesome programming for you. You're going to get to see IVS in action and get to dive into some of the technical details. So I hope everyone here is as nerdy as I am and you're going to get to dive in and uh, really enjoy it. Awesome. Emmett, thank you again. It's been a real pleasure having you on. Again, Emmett Shear, CEO of Twitch, jumping on a show here for AWS What's Next, talking about Amazon IVS. Marty was on previously. I've seen a lot of folks in chat, but also a lot of new names. So we just heard from Emmett about a little bit about of the story of, of the Twitch and Amazon relationship and where IVS can go going forward. And to recap a little bit, Marty, you kicked things off telling us sort of the fundamentals of, of IVS. But after hearing Emmett talk, I, I've got a lot of questions that I'm going to now throw to you. So, so Emmett's written checks that you're going to have to cash, but uh, I hope you're okay with that. <laughs> I'm used to that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So yeah, as, as GM of IVS, you are, you are intimately familiar with the, with the, with the nuts and bolts of, of sort of how this service works. So, you know, very happy to, to get to follow up on, on some of these questions here. I actually wanted to give a quick shout out to, to a lot of the folks in chat. You know, Emma was talking a lot about how, uh, you know, there, there are so many technical challenges that Twitch has had to uh, address in, in building not only the platform, but, you know, now IVS as a service. And that work wouldn't be possible without a lot of those little wrenches that I see in chat, right? A lot of the engineering folks over at Twitch Yes, we, we have an amazing team. Uh, they're very committed. In general, we're a bunch of Twitch fans, so we, we consume our product every single day. You know, we're, we're passionate about quality. We're passionate about latency. We're passionate about having great user experience. In general, we kind of attract people who want to see the platform improve, often for their own benefit, because they're, they're Twitch fans. Yeah, on the on the topic of uh, you know quality of the platform and, and quality of life features, like we were talking about with Emmett, we went through some of the. Actually, we may have spoken about this with you as well, but like the ephemeral experiences that we knew we loved live video, and I had been a follower for a very long time on Twitch. I I'd streamed every once in a while, but sort of the live interaction was something that really got me, and the, the culture that can develop from simply just having real time chat, uh, low latency chat. Folks have been asking, you know, in, in, in chat stuff about integrations or, or use with, with, with sports and stuff. And I think one of the funniest scenarios that I really was taken aback by was uh, when I was watching, I think it was the NFL, Thursday Night Football on Twitch, something I, I typically would never watch on TV. But there was just something about seeing, you know, like vac spam in chat or like PogChamp whenever someone made an amazing catch that really emanated. And, you know, like as soon as the catch happens, you look in chat and, and it's right there. It's, it's lined up right away. There's no like three second delay. So, you know, when, when Emmett was saying, you know, 10 years forward, there there's the ability to just make all of that simpler. You know, we don't think about maybe Thursday Night Football as... as and Twitch chat being uh, going arm in arm, but going forward, maybe that'll be the case, right? Uh, possibly. It's it's hard to know. It, 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 traditionally, it's been divided up between lean back and lean forward experiences. So lean back is you know you're in the couch, you're lean back, you're consuming, you're just watching it. And you can imagine a lot of things where you want it to be lean back. You don't want the distraction of a community, maybe you know a premiere of a new movie, Game of Thrones, something like that. But then there's other things where they're just innately a community experience. Certainly sports. I mean, people, people if, they, if they don't have people at their home to watch sports with, 
go to a bar to watch sports with people. So you could imagine a lot of different things where community matters a lot, and I could see people using IPS for those community kinds of domains. But then there's other areas where you, know, you could say, like news, education. These are all areas where you could see where community would really be beneficial. And I think we haven't figured out where that line is. We don't know yet. And I think the main reason we don't know yet is it's just been so ridiculously hard to get to the point where you could just have the video. Now you can have it in an hour, and you can really focus on your ideas. You can focus on your content. You can focus on your engagement, your interactivity. You can focus on the things that make, you, make your ideas special and unique for the audience that you're looking to build. Yeah, and one of the things that occurs to me is the, the video is one component of it. There's so much other stuff, like you mentioned, there's the community aspect, but then there's all these amazing integrations. And I see so much innovation around this space. Just to give you an example, uh, there's a game called Vermintide, where you know it's this four-player co-op survival shooter, but there's a Twitch integration that allows Twitch chat to make the game harder or easier for the streamers. They can, the Twitch, Twitch chat, if they don't like the streamer, they can yes. summon waves of monsters to make the gameplay even more stressful. Yeah, Hunger Games style, game. yeah. Yeah. And so it's these, these kinds of really creative loops that happen that, that I, I can't wait to, I, I think we're just scratching the surface. I, I agree, I agree. I don't even think, you know, the only thing that we know for sure is, is kind of a universal is chat. But beyond that, it's just the wild, wild west. And, and Twitch is certainly doing a lot of experimentation, uh, trying things out. And I can't wait to see when many, many people are all able to go their own directions and try things out. And we'll discover you know, other ways that communities, communities can be built around uh, live video experiences that I, I just I make no pretense that I know how it's going to turn out. I'm sitting here uh, uh, handing people a tool and I'm sitting with bated breath waiting to see what people do. Yeah. Well, so speaking of these integrations, would this be a good time to start transitioning and talking about the developer experience, the SDK for IBS? Yes, absolutely. It's always from the, the get-go, we wanted to hide the complexity. It's very easy to expose complexity. It's much harder to hide it. And so it's, uh, it really is... We've seen people integrate in under an hour. In fact, I saw a YouTube video yesterday where somebody not only built a, uh, a video app using IBS from scratch, but they also added, uh, using various AWS services, uh, chat and user login and authentication. And it was like, holy cow, it wasn't even an hour, it was like 45 minutes. So that shows that we're fitting, we're, AWS is doing the right things. We're, we're providing people the right building blocks and, and people are getting it on how to use those building blocks to, to create visions rapidly. So anyway, we should probably go to Max because Max has a great demo. Awesome. All right, so we have yet another face joining us here on the show. We're playing musical chairs here with all, with all the guests here in the third slot. But the most exciting part about this section is, Max, you are going to show us uh, what it means to build with IVS in action. And if you're a developer, this is uh, what it's going to look like to actually get hands-on with it. But before we get into that demo, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do over at Twitch? Yeah, sure. First of all, thanks so much for having me. I'm a product manager here on the Amazon IVS team. Basically, I've been working for the past two years on building out this service and talking to customers and you know, making sure that we're building the right thing. 
Wonderful. Welcome to the show, Max. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. So we've got lots of very excited wrenches in the audience, lots of other developers in chat watching along from home. They're curious what it looks like to build with IBS. We've heard Marty and Emmett, now they've all said, you know, in under an hour, you can build essentially your own platform without worrying about the heavy lifting of, of video. Is that what you're going to show us today, or at least sort of how to, how to get partially there? Absolutely. Uh, we're going to get there, and it's not even going to take us an hour. In this demo, I'm going to show you how to build a quiz app. And uh, it should only take us a couple minutes, actually. All right. Well, those are that's a that's a big promise. I, I won't hold you to it, but I, I'm holding my breath because I want to see it myself. Cool. Let's uh, let's get into it then. So the first step is just navigating to the Amazon IVS console page and actually creating your channel. So I will create a channel and I'll call it just demo, and I will leave the configuration as is. And now we have a channel. So now that our channel has been created, we can stream to this channel. And you can use just about any encoder that uh, supports RTMPS. But for this demo, I'm going to use OBS, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with from your time streaming on Twitch. So to configure OBS, what you need to do is take the ingest server and the stream key and paste it into the settings panel. So I already have the ingest server in OBS, but I will plug in my stream key. And here I just have some sample content on loop and I'll press the start streaming button. You'll know you're live when this little green indicator appears. And if we head back over to the console page, we should see a live preview. There we are. So that, that's our stream. And just to give you a sense of the latency here, I can arrange my windows. I'm going to move this little icon around. And just about, I don't know, two or three seconds later, we see that moving over here. And so that's the ultra low latency that Marty and Emmett were talking about. And it's really, that's really key to enabling this two-way interactive type of experiences that we're looking for. Uh, so at this stage, we actually have a stream a live stream up and running, you could take the player SDK, you could plug it into your website, you could plug it into your, your mobile app, and you'd be done. And I think this, we're, we're probably about a, a minute or two in here. But I want to show you one of the cooler features of the service called timed metadata. And timed metadata allows you to, to synchronize interactive elements with the video stream. So in the case of a quiz app, for example, you want the questions to appear in sync as the host is reading them. So we prepared a very basic quiz demo here. It's just a basic web app. It uses the IVS player SDK, and it has a quiz UI built on top of it. Uh, so the first thing I'll do is I will go back to the console page. I'll get our playback URL, and I'll plug it into our player. Awesome. So. So now that we have our stream running, the next step is actually sending the questions. Wait, and hold on, sorry. I know I'm interrupting and, and this is the train is moving at a million miles an hour. Like there's Absolutely. so much I want to say, but you know, that first part, the one to two minutes where we saw the preview in the console, you literally created this stream channel, which you could then do over an SDK call. So automate that and re instantly return a set of stream credentials to, to, to anybody and then just pop those in and start streaming. 
That, that's exactly right. Uh, so you can create you can create thousands. You can create as many channels as you need. They're instantly available. People can stream to them, and those streams are available instantly. And that video you could then distribute all around the world. That's that's awesome. So like every time someone signs up on your platform, you can just run that call, and then they have their own personalized stream channel. Exactly. Wow. And. Uh, you're going into it right here with the events, but I wanted to I wanted to touch on something that you glance over very quickly, but is actually really impressive. This player is essentially like that's another thing that people would have to work on or, or use their own libraries to to build their own player that can then integrate and ingest the stream that you're you're passing to the front end. But more than handling that video piping, IVS actually gives you an SDK for the player all in one. So it is like a complete white glove experience, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so with IVS, basically, all you have to do is send us the video and we take care of the rest. And uh, that includes playback as well. So we have player SDKs for iOS, Android, and the web. Uh, they're super simple SDKs. You can see here some of the JavaScript for the player SDK. You just drop in a script tag or we have an NPM module uh, if you would prefer. And it's uh, the player is tailor-built to playback the IVS streams. And so you don't need to you know, deal with finding players or configuring players for all the various platforms. We provide that piece as well. One thing I was going to call out that a lot of folks just sort of are used to as, as like table stakes on Twitch is, is the player's ability to, you know, switch the quality of the stream as a viewer, right? You know, maybe your bandwidth isn't so hot or, or you know, network outed, network's not doing well. You can switch between those qualities. Usually the developer would have to manage all of that, but the SDK for IVS, I'm pretty sure that has that bundled in, right? So, so that capability, they can switch between the different video qualities? Yeah, that's exactly right. So if you set up your channel as a standard broadcast, which we talked about a little earlier, we'll generate a set of qualities, and then the player will switch to the optimal quality for each viewer based on their network connection. So you might have viewers that are on a really you know, strong and stable network that can watch full HD, and you might have a set of viewers that are watching perhaps from a, a mobile network or just a, a constrained network or unstable network that can only watch 480p. And the player has all that decisioning logic built into it. So it'll pick the right quality for each viewer. Okay, wonderful. Sorry, I did not mean to interrupt, but back to timed, timed metadata or timed events. Uh, I didn't mean to derail us, but there, were, there was just so much in there that I thought deserved to be mentioned. Cool, yeah, absolutely. So, so again, where we are right now is we've, we have our stream up and running. It's live. We have a very basic web app here, which is built on the JavaScript player SDK and has a simple quiz UI on top of it. Um, and we plugged in our playback URL from the console into this player. The next step in building a quiz app is we need a way to send the questions in sync with the video. So as I said before, uh, what's really important it, often in interactive experiences is having a interactive element that is in sync with the video, regardless of each viewer's latency. So in the case of a quiz show, you have a host reading a question and you want the question prompt to appear as the host is reading it. And that's what the timed metadata feature enables. So I'll go ahead and, and send a question here. And the way that we'll do this is we have a very basic API, the put metadata API, that takes a, a payload of just arbitrary data. Uh, in this case, I have a payload, which is a question and a set of answers, and we'll use the AWS CLI to call this API. What will happen when, uh, oh, sorry, um, one last step. So 
each channel has a channel ARN, and this channel ARN is essentially the unique identifier for this channel. So because this channel is new, I didn't have the channel ARN here. I'll go ahead and plug this in. And what will happen when I call this endpoint is the question will get carried alongside the video to each viewer. And then if we go back to the player code here, the player will parse each question as it receives it, and it will trigger the quiz UI. So I'll go ahead and switch this to a full page view. Actually, I'll save this. We'll switch this to a full page view so you can see the questions as they come in. And we will take the put metadata command and go ahead and send this. So what we should see is a few seconds later, based on my latency, we'll see the question. So just some you know, Twitch trivia for you all, and actually I might answer this before. When did Twitch launch? Rob or Nick, do you remember earlier from the conversation? I, yeah, 2011 is my, my final answer. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. Awesome. What do I win? <laughs> uh, you win a uh, congratulations. You, you, you win a sticker. Hold on. I've got it for you. Give me one second. How does this one look? Fans, of, fans of that. Wait, I have that shop. one already. One. <laughs> <laughs> you, you so Max, one? Can, you, <laughs> can you take us back to the code for just one second? Yeah, absolutely. So if I understand correctly, this is coming in from that metadata call that you, you, there was a somewhere, yeah, right there, the player event type text metadata queue. Is that where this is happening? You have a callback function there? Yes, exactly. So, so as I said before, when you send metadata, it gets carried alongside the video as part of the video stream itself. And then every time the player sees metadata in the stream, it fires this text metadata queue event. And then it's up to you to take that metadata and to you know, trigger whatever interactive experience that you're building. So in this case, uh, we're taking that metadata and we are triggering the quiz UI. Okay, so just wanted to summarize this for both my benefit and for the benefit of the audience. We don't have to build a quiz here. We can actually send arbitrary payloads of data that will trigger the metadata callback and then we can handle that in whatever way we want. So for instance, one of the things we can ha have in the payload is like interaction type and we can build multiple kinds of interactions, whether it be a quiz or a survey or really anything, right? Yeah, totally. The, the, the possibilities are endless. We see a lot of customers that are building live commerce use cases where they're sending skew information as part of the video stream so that when a host is talking about a particular item, that item appears as, as kind of a, a byte now called the action. There are a lot of different possibilities. It's as, as I said, it's an arbitrary field of data and you can sort of do with it what you want. But what's important is that we do the hard work of actually syncing that metadata with the video. So aside from the, the metadata API that we have here, could you point out some of the other major API endpoints that we have with the SDK? Yeah, I mean, the SDK is, is pretty straightforward. It's, it's quite simple. The, the way it works is, at least on web, you just drop in this JavaScript, you tell it what the playback URL is, and you call play. And that's really all we had to do for this demo. Um, if you go to the, the Amazon IVS documentation, you can see a full set of reference docs for the player. But really, to get up, up, up and running, you don't actually need to do all that much with the player. And that, that's very much intentional. Mm -hmm. 
Is there any ability to customize the look and feel of the scrubber or the, the frame around this thing? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that is all fully customizable. And actually on the web, we provide a plugin for VideoJS, which is one of the more common player frameworks that has a lot of customization ability built in and also a whole community of uh, freely available skins. Awesome. And then, okay, final question, I promise. I feel like I'm taking up a lot of time, but uh, one, of the, one of the really cool things that I see the Twitch community doing all the time is taking clips of moments that they want to save and share. If we wanted to build an experience like that, is that supported right now or how would that work? It's, it's absolutely possible if you use some other tools within AWS. It's not something that we natively support today, but it's feedback that we've heard from many customers and it's something that we're considering supporting built into the service. Awesome. Wonderful. I mean, you know, <laughs> we heard before that one hour is the amount of time it can take to get up and started, but you showed us quite literally in just a few minutes. Um, I think that for, for those that are used to working with boilerplate code, uh, you know, I see here you have this code pen. Are there resources like essentially what I saw you do was paste your unique resource in here and it just worked with this boilerplate code. Is, is, is an example or a code sample like this something that folks could, could uh, be on the lookout for to implement on their own? Yeah, absolutely. So, so first of all, for those here, if you miss something, you can head over to the AWS blog. There's a post from July 15th that walks through this demo uh, in much greater detail. So you'll find all of the code that I've shown in this demo is referenced here in this blog. Additionally, we have code samples on GitHub as part of the AWS samples organization. So we have code samples for across all platforms, and you'll find this, this demo there as well. Also, this the same demo on iOS and Android, additionally. Awesome. The, the gears are turning in my head for uh, experiences I could try to build using this, this uh, you know, this new this new service, but in the more immediate future, <laughs> I'm currently streaming on Twitch. So uh, I, fi I figured that we can probably move things along in just a moment. Chat, I know there's lots of you, there's been lots of chatter, uh, but before we move off of this segment, I wanna make sure that all of the comments on IVS are, are, or our questions are answered. So if you have, uh, yeah, we have a question for a link for the blog, so I'll uh, go and hunt that down. But again, if, if you know whether you're a developer, whether you're not a developer, is there anything you want to know a little bit about the tech that powers Twitch, anything about interactive video service, please let us know as we sort of close out this first section. Yeah, seriously, chat, this is some amazing stuff. It's dangerous for me personally because I have a day job, but I already know that my afternoon is going to be spent hacking on this. So if you have any more questions, now is the time. We have all the experts on stream. Let us know what you want to know. People wondering if C++ is used at Twitch. I, I'm so thankful we have, you know, Twitch staff jumping in, answering our questions, making it easier for our guests too. But the answer to that being a yes on the video playback team. We have some links in chat there for the blog post. Someone also wondering if IVS is available in the free tier. So for people that may not be familiar uh, on AWS, if you want to get started with some of our services, there is a threshold of, of usage that you can use them for free. Typically, that's a certain amount of usage per month or something. And IVS, uh, I think Rob said it's, it is free tier eligible. Yeah, yes, that's right. That's I believe when you create an AWS, AWS account, you get something like five hours of standard video included per month and then 100 hours. So five hours of HD and then 100 hours of standard. Yeah, you definitely, it's, on that. it's, it's, I, I don't know if that's exactly correct. I believe that you get basic channels, but it's uh, more than enough to get up and running and, and try the service. 
Wonderful. Uh, lots of folks asking for a link to the broadcast. Uh, we're going to be recording. This video will have a VOD by default and, and we'll have links uh, on our own socials and so on. If you're interested in seeing this again, we'll also re-upload it elsewhere. If you're following AWS, follow myself, follow Rob. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely be tweeting all those things out. But without further ado, Rob, anything else you think we should cover or touch on with IVS before we move on to uh, the second session for today? Yeah, I think there's a quick question we can knock out. Top Swag Code asks ASP.NET Core 3.1 support. I assume you are not talking about Blazor. You're talking about serving a website that uh, from ASP.NET Core that supports IVS. And the answer is absolutely. What we're seeing here is CodePen. So imagine that you're building a step, uh, you're serving a um, a single page app or even server side rendered, right? And you can include the script and it'll work in the front end. The browser will be none the wiser that you're using, you know, .NET. PHP, whatever. I've got another question in chat from Onyx Raven. They're wondering if IVS will integrate with things like Kinesis video streams or, or do other sort of like quality of life uh, amendments and processing on that video stream. So an example they have here would be like object detection. Imagine something like Amazon recognition or, you know, translation or transcription. These are these quality of life tie-ins that, that users could see in the roadmap in the future for IVS. Yeah, that's, that's a really great question. So you could absolutely use IVS with other AWS services. Uh, IVS itself, we like to say it's kind of a bigger building block than most AWS services themselves, but it does fit within the broader you know, set of puzzle pieces that AWS provides. So you could certainly wire up IVS uh, with Kinesis Video or Recognition or any other AWS service if your use case requires it. Wonderful. I, I, I feel bad because I'm, I'm giving IVS so much coverage here, but, but given, you know, the relationship to Twitch and the, the uh, you know, the audience and how much it affects them, you know, this launch is just so unique in so many ways, right? You know, most of our launches sort of by nature here at AWS uh, will be most exciting to developers that will use them. But I think that, you know, with us as developers that, that create these experiences, we also use them ourselves so much where we're here streaming on Twitch ourselves, right? We, we consume Twitch. We watch all these different shows on it. So even if you're not, let's say, a developer there watching in the audience right now, these services and understanding sort of the functionalities that they enable will sort of pave the way for the platforms that, that are going to pop up as a result of this, that, you know, new experiences, you know, we, we mentioned before that we can't even imagine, Marty can't even imagine how all the ways that this will be used. Like, I'm personally holding out for the, the hooks and integrations where we have truly community-driven games. You know, we had Twitch plays Pokemon with, with you know, like hacked emulators and Twitch chat and stuff. But imagine, uh, you know, like a choose-your-own-adventure game that's just completely built from the ground up with IVS where you just go to a web page. Like, that's what the future could hold. And, and that's really exciting to me. And I, and I know that everyone is, is probably imagining an equally as exciting scenario that, that looks slightly different. Cool. So sorry, I just went on a soapbox for a little bit about how excited I am. My, my mouth is hurting from smiling and, and people were, were teasing me in chat about that before that I was excited and geeking out when you were uh, you know, working through the console. More than anything, I was just anxious you were going to leak your stream key, which I think is something that... Oh no, I, I, I practiced. <laughs> I practiced that. <laughs> yeah, we've all, we've all made that mistake. You know, yeah. I, I think in the case of Nick and I, probably dozens of times a year. So it's just... <laughs> We feel a little bit better when other people mess up. Just yeah, give that us a little slack here. Been the, the fatal error for sure. Yeah, yeah, and, and and I mean just to just to touch on what Nick said, you know, part of the reason we're so happy about this is because we're, we're Twitch viewers. We we use Twitch all day, and you know, just seeing the evolution and seeing what the service can do and seeing how easy it is. I mean, the gears are turning for us. I I can I can tell you for sure 
how we are going to be using this in our projects, you know, whether it's hobby projects or work projects. I mean, the, the, I really feel like this has opened up a lot of possibilities. Yeah, that, that's, that's really awesome. As Marty said before, many of us are, are just are, are fans of Twitch and fans of interactive video in general. And so we couldn't be more excited to see what people build with it. Final, final comment, which again, looking forward, if folks in the audience are developers, they're interested in using this. Marty said, you know, they can't ima- he can't imagine all of the ways this will be used. But the reason why this was released now was so that we can continue to develop this together with community feature requests. What would be the best way for folks to reach out or express their desire for certain features in IVS? Yeah, so we are very active on the Amazon IVS AWS forum. Uh, so if you go to the AWS forums, there's a specific section for Amazon IVS. And I can tell you that the team actively watches that. And we'd really love to hear from developers that are building products on the service. And we'd love to hear your feedback. Wonderful. And uh, you know, Rob and I were trying our best to describe what a developer advocate does briefly, but that's, that's a high challenge. But um, you know, <laughs> broadly, we also serve as conduits for some of that feedback. So if you find us on social media, you let us know some of those feature requests. We will do our best to get that passed along to the, the service teams, just like we see right here. So do, yeah, we have our social links in chat, link to the forums in chat. Man, so, such an attentive audience today. This is, this is wonderful. We love to see it. We are an hour and 15 into the show, uh, uh, and we have two other sessions left. We could spend all day on IVS. Honestly, this is, this is so cool. Uh, and I think that you know, it, it seems like even in the audience, folks that may not be developers are starting to, to come to the same conclusions we are and, and see really what is possible here. And, and that is uh, due in no small part to you know, this demo that you provided, Emmett getting up here and talking sort of about the vision and the history of it, and, and Marty walking us through the background and, and the, some of the technical nuts and bolts that went into putting this together. So, uh, you know, thank you to all of you folks for, for taking the time and coming out onto the stream today. Thanks so much for having us. We're, we're really excited to be here. Awesome. Well, uh, without further ado, the show must go on. Switching gears a little bit, no pun intended. We're talking a little bit about AWS Deep Racer, which we will, we will cover in just a moment. But before we get into that, joining us here, fresh faced on the show, Eddie Kaleha, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Eddie, thank you for joining us. And uh, as a senior software engineer here at Amazon, uh, I know you are, are closely, closely familiar with, with the Deep Racer itself. But why don't you tell folks sort of your relation to this, to this service? That's very exciting. Yep. So I've been on Deep Racer pretty much since its inception. And today I oversee the software stacks for the virtual environment, the reinforcement learning algorithms, and the device software, which is what we're going to be talking about here today. That's awesome. Welcome to the show, Eddie. Thank you, Robert. Yeah, I'm, I'm chock full of puns today. So uh, switching gears and now uh, you know driving right along. We are here to talk about DeepRacer Evo, which is an exciting new change or an improvement, new set of features. We'll talk specifics, but uh, my point being here, Let's talk a little bit broadly about what Deep Racer is, because I know that there are many enthusiasts who have, who have uh, who are very aware of what it is. Uh, but for folks who have not talk, who have not seen it at all, Eddie, can you give us a brief rundown on on Deep Racer? Yeah, absolutely. Deep Racer is a one eighteen scale autonomous driving RC vehicle, which launched at reInvent twenty eighteen, and we really built it because we wanted to sort of onboard people with reinforcement learning and make it the fastest way to teach folks about reinforcement learning. So we built out the platform in two parts. We have a virtual environment where you can go train your models virtually. 
And then we have a physical device where you take those models that you trained in the virtual environment and you deploy them down onto the physical device. And sort of while we were developing DeepRacer back in 2018, we were kind of having challenges between the groups. So, you know, it was like the engineering group would challenge the science team. And out of that kind of was born the idea of having the DeepRacer League, which I know we'll talk about in a little bit. But this was sort of a way to see who had the best model, sort of speak, and sort of compete. And so we brought that to customers as well back in the initial launch of DeepRacer. Now, Eddie, you mentioned that this is meant as an introductory experience for reinforcement learning. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Let's say you know, we have somebody who gets started with DeepRacer and gets really hooked on reinforcement learning. How can they expand upon that within AWS? Well, we have lots of great learning resources if they want to learn more about reinforcement learning. And I'm sure some of the moderators will put that in the chat. But if they want to go further than DeepRacer, DeepRacer, you know, it works actually on two other AWS platforms, AWS RoboMaker and AWS SageMaker. So once you start getting comfortable with reinforcement learning, you can go over to AWS SageMaker RL and start building out more reinforcement learning models there and continue to grow your knowledge and, and actually leverage reinforcement learning for whatever your production use may be. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, when folks think reinforcement learning, for anyone who's had a cursory introduction to machine learning and AI, reinforcement learning can be scary, but DeepRacer makes it easy to sort of understand the behavior of your model because you're quite literally having your car drive as a result of the model that you've loaded onto it, right? So, so you get this very tangible experience of like tying real world phenomena to this model that you've trained. And there's, there's just something very real about that interaction that uh, I think helps a lot of people really start to, to understand the concepts at play here. Yeah, absolutely. And if I may just add to that, I mean, one of the things that differentiates reinforcement learning from like traditional machine learning techniques is this sort of idea of thinking about incentivizing behavior. Whereas, you know, in regular machine learning, it's sort of like, hey, you just want to train this thing to, for example, and this is a joke I'm sure I'll use over and over again throughout the broadcast, but like a cat dot detector, which is something that, you know, when we all learn about machine learning, this is like one of the first things we do. And then all it can do is really, hey, tell you if something's a cat or a dot. Uh, but in reinforcement learning, it's really learned the behavior. And one of the cool things that you can do is, hey, I train this car to drive a particular track, and then I can go, so say, for example, the Barcelona track. And then I can go and see how it performs on like the reInvent track. So that is super cool. It really learned the behavior of how to drive and what to do and what sort of actions to take. And, and thinking about that is really an exciting part of reinforcement. Yeah, definitely. Can you, but on, on the topic of what other problems it can solve, you mentioned the cat dog detector as an academic example. Can you just give us some other real world examples that reinforcement learning is best situated to solve? Yep, and just a quick correction, Robert. So reinforcement learning won't really do very well with the no. cat, more like supervised learning. Um, but reinforcement learning is used, like for example, to manage like the temperature at uh, data centers where temperature is really critical. And you know, normally this is managed by something called the PID. But a reinforcement learning algorithm can basically you can incentivize it to make it warmer or colder depending on what target temperature you want. And it's also used sort of in the financial sector. Uh, it turns out that whenever you have Reinforce something that requires a strategy. Reinforcement learning is a very good tool. And, you know, if you just go and Google on the internet, you'll see reinforcement learning. People usually benchmark it against video games because, again, there's this sort of like strategy concept in video games of like, hey, which sort of way do I want to solve the maze or how do I get the most points? That sort of stuff. Reinforcement learning is really good at solving those type of problems. 
as it does with AWS DeepRacer, where the strategy is, hey, how do I get around the track the fastest? Eddie, let me, let me just play that back to you very quickly and make sure I got it all. So DeepRacer here, basically giving newcomers and veterans alike a way to kind of get their hands on a, a solution or, or a scenario where the concepts of reinforcement learning are made very fun, very visceral. You know, you get immediate feedback about, you know, and, and a goal to drive your incentive to, to learn these things. And then once you have those foundations, then you can broaden out to using the underlying foundational AWS services, RoboMaker and SageMaker. You use those tools to solve lots of different kinds of real world problems, including, you know, controlling uh, temperature for various industrial HVAC systems, financial models, et cetera. Is that right? Yeah, you can definitely go and expand and, and build on those services. I would say, you know, you probably use RoboMaker more for like your robotics needs and, you know, sort of like for a virtual environment, which is what we use it for. We run Gazebo and that's the virtual simulator that we use to simulate racing around the track. And SageMaker, you know, it's just a fantastic platform. It's Amazon's all stop, all shop machine learning platform. And you can build pretty much any machine learning algorithm on, on, on SageMaker. So it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Like I said, DeepRacer runs on both of these wonderful platforms. And it's how we bring it to you. Awesome. I, I wanted to touch on, on, on Gazebo there really quickly. So we won't go too deep onto the fundamentals of, of Machine Learning 101. That, that could take us so much time. But using the simulator to train your model, but also to be able to do that racing and competing. Uh, you mentioned before the ability to race around these different named tracks, Barcelona, New York, uh, Las Vegas, for example. Uh, this, this, you know, the virtual side of this is the Deep Racer League, where when folks want to compete, they can actually compete digitally against one another. And, and this is something that we've had for, for you know, a past, at least the past year for, from my familiarity with it. And, uh, you know, to tie this all into where the goals are and what the competition is really about, it was this old goal of being able to make it around the track as quickly as possible. This is, this is racing 101, right? But we're here to talk about Deep Racer Evo, and I know there are some new changes that make the, this entire competition a little bit more exciting. I'll, I figured I'd, I'd let you sort of share what's new here as uh, the person who was on the team that built it. Well, so with Deep Racer Evo, we wanted to sort of let the Deep Racer solve more complicated problems, and that means more complex environments. And in order to do that, you know, if you think about it, when we launched the initial Deep Racer, all it could do was kind of see. You know, you think of yourself. You can you can see, and that's one sense. But if we want to solve more complicated problems. We kind of give it some other senses. And you know, the technical term for this is increasing the state. But really, it's just we added the ability for it to learn how far away things are, and to learn how far away things are sort of in in a, around it. And this helps us support more complex environments. So how did we do that? Well. The first thing we did is we added an extra camera module, and this created essentially a stereo camera. And this works just the same way that your eyes work, right? We have two eyes. This is how we do depth perception. You know, your brain does it a little different than the deep racer would, as you can imagine. And so that allows us to know how far away something is, and that information can get encoded into the machine learning model. And then we added a LiDAR, which LiDAR, what it does is it uses lasers to determine how far away things are around it. And you'll see it, you'll see later in the demo that it's always spinning. That's because it's taking data all around its surroundings. And then it kind of tells you whether, hey, there's an object here on my right and how far away it is, or there's nothing. There. And so adding these two components and having these two sensors really allow us to expand the AWS DeepRacer. And it allows us to do fun events like the F1 event. And if, if folks don't know what that is, they can go check it out at 
aws.amazon.com deepracer f1 where you know we at the end of the day we took we sort of took racing strategies from professional racers and then raced them against or top developers up on the leaderboards and then raced them all against each other and having you know sort of these extra sensors and the ability to train in these extra formats which we're going to get into here in a second is really what the deep racer evo is about and so we actually enabled that on the virtual environment at reinvent 2019 and people could get started working on those models right away and they did we have such competitive people up on our leaderboards it's crazy what our customers are doing and, and how much engaged they are and how vibrant the community is and then on july 13th we launched the deep racer evo sensor kit which now allows you to take those models that you trained in the virtual environment and actually get to see them in the real car and we previewed this at reinvent this past year in 2019 but now it's time for you know for the developers to go on and show us what they can do by training these models and deploying them down to the car so i am a uh i live in new york i've been a lifelong new yorker but when i lived in the bay area uh, a little while ago, I saw a lot of these cars that would drive around in the streets. And, and when you mentioned these spinning LiDAR sensors, I feel like I saw a lot of those around. Uh, are we talking the same type of technology here? Um, it, it's similar. You know, uh, most self-automated driving cars actually are based on perception models, not reinforcement learning. But they do have a bunch of LiDAR sensors, uh, depending on you know, company and how they've implemented the self-driving car. I think it'd be pretty hard to implement the self-driving car without LIDARs, but, but not my area of expertise. So. Great. Well, um, <laughs> one of the things as, as uh, someone who's, who's followed along with the, with the Deep Racer League uh, over the past year is, is the concept of AWS subject matter experts who help service at the events and, and uh, work on some of these cars and help folks load their models on, uh, much like in F1 or, or traditional racing, we call that the pit crew. And so uh, part of being in the pit crew is the ability to work and manipulate this, this physical device, the Deep Racer, that has a lot of traditional parts to a regular uh, traditional car, but with some extra bells and whistles to, to handle the, the machine learning model and performing that inference on the fly. I was wondering, is there any chance we would actually be able to get a look at, at some of this hardware for the Deep Racer yeah, Evo? I want to see it. I think, I think that'd be cool. Which, yeah, you want to see this real car? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just happen to have one right here. Oh, wonderful. Uh, this is a Deep Racer Evo. And you can see the LiDAR spinning up here. Hopefully you guys can tell that's spinning. And now the car really has it, two batteries. There's two parts to it. So right up here, maybe we start with regular Deep Racer. And you can kind of take a peek. This is sort of the brain of the device that's housed in this case. This is where we have an, an Intel Atom processor, which is what you know makes all the decisions. It's the CPU and GPU that manages everything that goes on, all the software systems on the device. And so that's powered by this fellow right here, which is the compute battery, uh, which conveniently slides underneath the case over here. And then down here, and I don't know if you guys will be able to see it, but it's the servo. So these are sort of the deep racer's legs. And this is the little motor that makes this well, essentially an RC car and makes it go. And then there's one more feature, which is this back LED that we added for customization. So, you know, you can customize your deep racer, whatever color you want. I think we offer about eight colors. And so now with the Evo, so that's kind of deep racer V1. And then with the Evo, what we did is we added, you see now there's two cameras. So originally for the deep racer, there would just be one. So 
So these are sort of, they kind of look like eyes, and that's because they're doing depth sensing. So this is how we do it. And, you know, you could take these things off. Let me not try in, in, in the sense that I may actually put, put this whole thing uh, down here since it's a demo. But you can take these off and go back to the regular deep racer, the non-Evo version. And likewise, you could take off the LiDAR. And so the LiDAR mounts up here. It has a nice mounting plate. And then, yeah, and then that, that's pretty much the gist of it. So once you get this guy and, you know, you can just add in the two sensors and get our latest software and you can convert your car into an Evo. Eddie, where's the, where's the nitro booster? <laughs> well, we're still working on that one. <laughs> of course, of course. We, um, we'll take this back to the product team and see if they, <laughs> uh, how they feel. I'm still waiting for us to have a, uh, you know, like an open circuit competition where people can mod their deep racers and just show up with any ridiculous sort of contraption that they've modified like uh you know supercharged batteries or supercharged processors like almost the you know the crazy cpu benchmarks but for for, for your own deep racer uh, yeah, yeah and, that, be- and, and nathan's comment about how uh when is it gonna fly hover deep racer please i feel like we're slowly gonna edge our way toward like an aws battle bots league instead of a deep <laughs> racer league at some point uh, i don't know that I mean, you know the future is is definitely you know we're always looking for new and creative ways to teach people about great technology that is machine learning. But, you know, interestingly enough, at reInvent, if you made your way down to the pits in 2018, and I believe also in 2019, you could actually customize your deep racer shell. And people came up with all sorts of interesting customizations that made them look really, really, really cool. And we had a contest on that as well as to who had the best customization putting stickers on it. So not quite as exciting yet as, uh, you know, bringing your own CPU and doing all these interesting things to make the deep racer just zoom its way through but but we are you know we do allow some customization well eddie everyone knows that putting flame decals on the side of your deep racer shaves at least three and a half seconds off your lap time so that's of course (laughs) what i did to my shell but we actually had a question in chat around sort of the 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 basics of how this works because hey we're aws we handle cloud computing Mm -hmm. they're wondering is the deep racer sending the the real time input up to the cloud to be processed to make decisions, or where is that actual decision making happening? That's actually an excellent question. So remember, from earlier in the talk, we have two things: we have the virtual environment, and we can talk a little bit about how that's architected. But as you guys have mentioned before, that runs on RoboMaker and SageMaker, and we have those two. We basically orchestrate a communication between those two services where we collect data on, on RoboMaker, and this is in the virtual environment, and then we send that data over to SageMaker. Now, once you've trained a model, and this is what's cool, the service will actually give you what's called a frozen model, and it doesn't mean we put it on ice or anything, but it basically means that it's ready to deploy onto the device. Now, once it goes onto the device, we run on the, the DeepRacer software stack on the device, uses an inference engine called Intel OpenVINO. And Intel OpenVINO optimizes the model so that it can run as fast as possible. And then it actually runs on the CPU on the device. And then what happens is, is like, you know, from the Evo, you get data from the two cameras and you get data from the LiDAR. That LiDAR goes to the model. And then the model, the machine learning model here, makes a decision as to what action we should take. So should you go left? Should you speed up? Uh, you know, how do we navigate this track? And that happens at around 15 FPS. So every 66 milliseconds, we're making a decision as to which way we can drive and how fast we should be going. And that's the behavior that you guys incentivized up on the cloud in the actual service. 
Awesome. And, and that makes a lot of sense, right? You know, if you're accepting real time inputs as you have a moving vehicle, you would want the time for the making those decisions to be as low as possible. So moving that model off of the cloud and onto the actual device while challenging from a compute and a powering perspective is really the only way to have something like this that's truly responsive in real time, right? That's absolutely right, Nick. If we tried to hit the server, just the simple latency would just kill us. You know, if you think like good latency at like 100 milliseconds, for example, is too much. I mean, you're going too fast. Your car is going to go off the track and you're going to, you know, you're going to end up against the wall. <laughs> maybe some maybe someday we can deploy a, an outpost to, to run a local server and run a little compute on the outpost just 10 feet away. Uh, um, you, could, you could do that. <laughs> Yeah. Not, not impossible. You could totally do that, but 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 you you find you get really good performance by running it on the edge, which is what it's doing, and it's probably a lot cheaper than running a local outpost and easier to set up. <laughs> yeah, it might be a little bit cheaper. I think that's the understatement of the century. That now, now Eddie, one thing I want to—I feel like we need to to um, remind the the chat on a regular basis here is that what what you've described there is the end-to-end -end flow of what it's like to actually take your model and run the car on the track. But in fact, to improve this iteratively, you don't need the physical vehicle, right? You can do this in a simulator. And that means that you don't need to buy one of these things in order to start, you know, refining your model, getting ready to compete in the, in the league. And I want to just make sure that, that that message gets out. That's absolutely true, Robert. You don't need a AWS Debracer device to start to get your hands, you know, to basically start learning about reinforcement learning. You could go to the AWS Debracer console and you could get going right there. You can iterate there. Um, you know, and in fact, you, you're absolutely correct. You improve your models on the AWS Debracer console before you deploy them down to the device. You can race in a virtual league and you can basically just get all those learnings on there. But there's something really cool about like seeing something in a simulated virtual environment. And then taking that and deploying it down to the device and actually seeing it do it in real life. Because, you know, in a lot of machine learning applications, you don't really get that sense of gratification. Most of the time, you know, as data scientists, you are looking at metrics to determine. And, and all that stuff's really important. But there's just something that makes me smile every time I go down to the pits and, and see people racing it and seeing it for the first time. That experience, I think, you just you can only really get with it. Yeah, the, the excitement is is really palpable. If, you know, if you're ever, uh, you know, you, there's lots of actually footage uh, from Deep Racer League uh, and as well as the events in person and, and the online variant as well. You can check that out on YouTube if you want to get a flavor for what that looks like. But I'm going to point us to the new challenges within Deep Racer Evo that it can help us, and new competitions that it spurs that I will say will. Uh, <laughs> will make the excitement in for these races even more exciting. So again, the previous goal was to make it around the track as quickly as possible, and this may still hold true. But with these new sensors, you mentioned we can detect some new parts of our environment. What are the new challenges that we enable in Deep Racer League or with Deep Racer Evo now? Yeah, so we actually introduce two new racing formats. We have object avoidance, where we put some boxes down on the track and your task is still still going to be to get around as quickly as possible but now you have to teach your model to dodge these boxes because if you crash into them well you get a penalty <laughs> it's not good and then we also enabled head-to-head -head racing and the way we train this we train this into what we call bot cars which are sort of cars that are on prescribed paths around the track and then you have to be able to avoid those cars and deal with lane changing and things of that nature. Now here it's a little bit different. We run 
you know, we have a qualifier at the end of the month, and then we race the top 32 racers against each other in a tournament head to head. So in a way, you still want to go faster, but you want to go faster. You want to be able to beat your opponent and you want to be able to not crash into him or her because otherwise, you know, well, you get a penalty <laughs> and you're not doing well. So this is really the new racing format that, a lot, that the Deep Racer Evo allows us to do. And, and so it, these have just been super cool. And we've seen a lot of just people enthusiastic going at it and, you know, going at it on the leaderboard. And, and then, you know, again, just to bring back the F1 event where we actually held a 12 car Grand Prix where you got to race against, you know, if you got, if you made it, if you qualified for the Grand Prix, you got to race against Daniel Ricardo and Tatiana Calderon, which are both F1 drivers. So all this super cool stuff is really enabled by having those extra sensors out there. Awesome. And uh, I, you may have mentioned this before, given sort of the relationship between the sensors and the, the base deep racer vehicle, but just so that it's very clear, this the release of Deep Racer Evo hardware, you can either buy both of them as a bundle or you can buy the new sensor kit and apply that to your existing Deep Racer vehicle. So if you've already purchased one, you can simply apply the new kit to it, right? That's absolutely correct. And in fact, if you got a Deep Racer as early as reInvent 2018, you can go on Amazon.com, purchase a Deep Racer Evo kit, which is available uh, with a, at a limited price, a limited offer of 149 today. And you can take your car and then turn it from a Deep Racer to a Deep Racer Evo. Or you can purchase the Deep Racer, a Deep Racer car with the Evo sensor kit together, have it shipped to your home and get started with Deep Racer Evo right away. Wonderful. We mentioned before the experience of, you know, you, you simulate in the console and you load that model onto the vehicle. When I, when I put on my engineering hat, I think like, oh, loading a model somewhere, you know, like maybe I'm not proficient in machine learning. That sounds like it could be daunting. Maybe you could walk us through just like the, the steps, either verbally and console, whatever you think would be easiest to, for basically just like loading a model onto the deep racer. Because I, I think this distinction of like, you know, going from the cloud to the physical device, it, there's, it, they're quite literally separated physically. How easy is that experience with, the, with deep racer? Uh, it's extremely easy. All you have to do to load a model onto the device is you download a model from the AWS Deep Racer console. Once it's ready, there'll be a button that says download model for deploying it on the car. And that's going to download essentially a tarball. And then all you have to do is basically go to the AWS Deep Racer console, which you can access on your browser. And now the, I think one thing that to mention here is that the device console runs locally over your router. So, you know, you get the IP out and you do that when you register, when you provision the device. So you go, you hit the Deep Racer device console, and then there's literally a button that says load model, and then you just load the model and that's it. Awesome. <laughs> very exciting stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds very intuitive. I wonder if we could see a demo of it. Uh, we can actually, if you guys want me to share my screen. Yeah, go right ahead. I know the fans in chat are, uh, are are chomping at the bit to see it. So, <laughs> uh, cool. So uh, I'll go ahead and share my screen. Yeah. And uh, this is the AWS Deep Racer device console, and I've actually put us where you would go to load a model. So you see the the uh, model, the selection here of what we have, and we'll go back to control vehicle in just a second. So I've already loaded a couple of models on here. And these are or sample models which ship with the software. So these are models to sort of get you going if you just want to, if you don't want to train a model and you just want to 
see the car, do some avoidance or use some of the, the sensors, we provide these for you. They tell you what the sensor configuration is. So for example, this one is just stereo camera without the LiDAR, so it doesn't have the LiDAR signal. This was essentially a, you know, an old, well, I don't know if you may want to call it an older deep racer model where it just has the one camera. And then this is one that leverages LiDAR and the sensor camera. So, you know, when you come from the AWS console and you download your model into your computer, you could just hit upload model. This is going to pull up a, just as you would imagine, a file selector. And then you just click on your model and it lo loads it here. And that's it. That's the whole model uploading procedure. Now, once you've uploaded your model, and you guys are seeing sort of my living room here, this is actually the landing page for the AWS DeepRacer Evo. And we've added some new visualizations such as LiDAR. And you can see the LiDAR right now is uh, moving around. And the reason for that is because it's, I'm putting my hand actually next to it. So you can see it actually physically detect things close to the device. And if we wanted to load a model, all we'd have to do is go here from our model selection list. And this is only gonna allow you to load models that, that you know, the model was trained with a particular sensor configuration. The model doesn't work if let's say I train something with stereo and LiDAR and I don't have LiDAR plugged in, then it's not going to work, which is why we have here a, a display sh showing you what sensors you currently have connected. And so, yeah, if we just click on this, it'll ask you, hey, do you want to load this model? And you say yes. And it takes about 10 or 12 seconds. And this is because just sort of like loading a model requires us to load all the weights and all the math sort of speed into the GPU and this takes a little bit of time. But once it's all set and ready to go, this will turn green and then that's it. Then we would hit start. What? Which I'm not gonna do because the deep racer's gonna fly off my, my <laughs> It's gonna my, avoid the chair and fly right out through your window. <laughs> it's quite possible it may do that. <laughs> <laughs> on the we'll we'll keep one hand on it so that it doesn't do that. But I, I was just gonna point something out. So if you look up there in the uh, the address bar there for the URL, you'll notice that's not a uh, publicly available website. That is an IP address locally for the actual deep racer. So what you're looking at here is, uh, and correct me if I'm if I'm completely off base or, or have, I'm saying anything wrong, but this is not the console where you sign into the you know. AWS, no. Amazon console. This is you connecting through your browser on your local network directly to your device and you're interacting directly with it through this GUI. That's absolutely correct. So basically, if this runs on your router, this is how you connect to the device. And you know, most of the time, we won't connect to the device the way that I'm doing here, which is from my computer. Most people connect via a tablet or a cell phone because you want to drive it around. So one of the things you could do is you could put it in manual mode and you get a little joystick. And this thing right here will allow you to drive the car just like a regular RC car. If you want to have some fun or, you know, if you wanted to go chase somebody around, <laughs> you could do that with this as long as you're on, on the network. But that, that's absolutely correct. This is not from the uh, console where you uh, train stuff. So we, we have two modes, autonomous mode and manual mode. And in manual mode, you're actually physically driving the car. It's not the reinforcement learning model that drives the car. Well, I think that also answers one of the questions we had in Twitch chat about whether you can manually control one of these things. And the answer is yes. It appears as a device on your network with its own IP address. Eddie, just wanted to forward another question to you. And I think this one we're going to see throughout the rest of the demo. But here it is. How much freedom do we get from defining for defining our own functions in the standard RL formulation? For example, can we define arbitrary policy, value, and reward functions? 
Well, you can define arbitrary reward functions up on the AWS console. In fact, one of the cool things that, you know, how we wanted to onboard people with reinforcement learning is like, well, you know, the reinforcement learning, like you mentioned, I think Nick, you mentioned that it seems really scary. So what we did is, hey, let us take care of some of the reinforcement learning algorithm and let's ease you into this. And the way we're going to ease you into this is by focusing on the reward function. And so you can go on the AWS console and you can basically craft your own reward function. You can craft as many of them as you want. In terms of value functions, we currently only offered an algorithm called PPO, which stands for Proximal Policy Optimization. And we use that within an algorithm called Actor Critic. And this is all within a paradigm called the function approximation. And that's pretty much all just jargon out there. But uh, it basically means that you, you don't define the value function because the value function is, in fact, a neural network that you learn, which is what the actor critic algorithm does. It basically, you're simultaneously learning a neural network for the policy and a neural network for the value function. So that was a very, very poignant question. That's a fantastic question. So you don't get to tweak the value function, but you do get to tweak the reward function all you want. Eddie, that was, that was a yeah. wonderful answer. And I think it, it sort of speaks to the depth you can take DeepRacer, right? You can you can use it at this very high level and, and get onboarded in an easy-to-digest manner. But if you want to really explore the the underlying components of, of how a relation, in reinforcement learning works, you know that's possible here. And, and many of the folks like yourself that are probably out helping as members of the DeepRacer pick crew are the ones you can ask, ask those questions to. So that's, that's super awesome. I have a similar question that is equally as pointed, but much easier to answer, I think. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> All right. So uh, you showed me that dashboard. I can hit plus and minus on speed, right? When am I able to take a piano pedal and uh, use that as an IoT gas pedal for my DeepRacer device? Because uh, that's what I'm <laughs> waiting for. No, not not quite yet. <laughs> um, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. We we actually uh, with the Deep Racer Evo, we increased the size of that because we found that a lot of our customers were using it again in the tablet or cell phone setting. So we made it bigger, so it's easier for you to increase the speed. Yeah, we're not quite there yet on on the gas pedal. <laughs> Love that idea. I, I hope the product team's watching. They get they're getting a lot of good ideas here from this chat. <laughs> yeah, how about streaming the uh, the stereo cameras to a uh, Oculus Rift or something, and then combining that with the gas pedals and having the out of body experience of you driving the race car around? The out of body experience of running a race car around that that's definitely a much more complex project. <laughs> we're, we're not quite I, there yet. <laughs> I like the even handed handling of these crazy ideas. Yeah, this is, uh, hey, this is where some, I feel like, honestly, if I were in some of the early meetings, listening to, yeah, we're going to make a reinforcement learning powered car and, and build it for developers, like that sound would probably at the time sound just as, you know, off the wall. But, you know, here we are, right? So these these ideas and features come from conversations just like this. And I will bring an amazing one up from chat. Uh, Janiscu, uh, uh, one of the returning viewers to this show, uh, is is requesting an IoT integration for the Power Glove so that you can probably steer or uh, control throttle. <laughs> well, I would say we're always looking for new and creative ways to improve the product. So we will definitely take those suggestions. <laughs> Diplomatically said. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, man. <laughs> awesome. So this is Deep Racer Evo. And so, you know, for folks that have 
worked with Deep Racer before, this this uh, you know in console experience. A lot of this hasn't changed, but you know some of the new stuff again. The toggles up for lidar, the ability to uh, you know share both your uh, lidar powered models or your traditional models without the lidar sensors, all still in line. So for returning folks to Deep Racer, experience looks very familiar, but now with some augmented superpowers, I guess you could say. Yep. Absolutely correct. And now log us back in here. And hopefully I didn't forget the password. That's it's absolutely correct. So we've added support for these new sensors and visualizations to help you kind of see what the sensors are doing and what inputs you're actually sending to your reinforcement learning model. So it's kind of has a feel of you're familiar with DeepRacer, you're you're gonna, you know, you're still gonna see some of the same stuff. It's still gonna feel familiar to you. But we've added some new things to really help you get rolling with uh, reinforcement. See what you did there. Get rolling, deep racer. Now, now you're now you're thinking with portals. Uh, we've got some more. Uh... We've had so many puns around this product. It's, it's kind of it, it, you kind of come to realize how many driving puns you can make in in natural conversation every day. Because every time you know, when you're talking deep racer, you say, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna drive this idea home." <laughs> And it's, you know, it immediately everybody's like, ah, you're making a pun about the deep racer. Uh, so it's, it's been super cool on that front, too. Uh, ch- chat is going wild. I know you're, you're probably not able to see it, so I'll just pass it along. People are, people are waiting for the, uh, like the, the deep racer brains to be able to apply to a go-kart. People are wondering when there's going to be the Roomba versus uh, deep racer object avoidance competition or the head-to-head comparison. <laughs> they're, they're just, man, this is, uh, this is great. I love this. <laughs> yeah, and it's fantastic. And, you know, I would say, you know, this year we, we increased to three formats. And, and, you know, like I said, we're constantly looking for ways to engage the community in, in, in a fun fashion. So, you know, I would just urge, urge everybody to stay tuned and, and see what we uh, can come up with. Here in the future. Awesome. Yeah. So, so after you, uh, some, some issues with password and, you know, hardest part about technology is still humans as we can see, <laughs> but the, yep. uh, for next steps, the only thing we haven't shown today is quite literally hitting go on that model after it's been loaded. So you showed before loading and selecting the model. Let's say we've trained one up in the simulator. We've, we've now loaded it onto the vehicle now all there is is to put it down on the track and, and to, you know, let it go and, and to record the track time, right? That's pretty much correct. I mean, we could try to... I don't know what will happen if I turn it on. Let's <laughs> if, uh, if everybody wants to see it, we could try it. <laughs> we'll, we'll give it the good old college try here. We'll give it the good old college try if i able to get the... Uh, well, I may not have the battery charged, actually. Oh, yeah, we're getting a vehicle battery not connected error there so, in the, uh... Yeah, so unfortunately, we we can't get rolling because we don't have a, a servo battery to get this to go. But you're absolutely correct. All we would have to do is hit the go switch, and that would be it. <laughs> and the car would just take off, so to speak. All right. And, and then, well, there's actually one more step. So mm-hmm. one thing about this is that we're training, and one thing about reinforcement learning and where it is today, just as a science, is that we're training for a track. So if we just hit go, yeah, it may avoid the chair and, and fall down, but it hasn't really been trained on this environment, which is my, my living room. So it's not going to know what to do. So if, you, if we just hit go right now, it's just going to take a bunch of random actions. So we actually need to lay down a track so that it can pick up on the visual cues that it learned while training, and then it would actually follow the path on that track. And there's some great instructions, and I, 
I hope uh, some folks can put it down in the chat and links to how to build your own tracks and how you can do that so you can actually have the device, you can actually see that behavior transfer from the virtual environment down to the real environment. Wonderful. Yeah, we're going to make sure to get all those resources in chat. But I guess in, in recap here, you know, all of the resources for folks who are excited by this and want to get started. We have the uh, launch blog post for DeepRacer Evo to sort of walk, walk users through what it looks like to get started with the, these new data inputs or, you know, the new sensors for, for LiDAR and depth perception. There is the, you know, you will go into your database console, you can start training your own model in the simulator there. Out of curiosity, I'm actually not familiar. Is there a free tier for DeepRacer at all? I believe there is a free tier for DeepRacer. Okay. Let's uh, double check that on the chat. But I believe we do have a free tier. Yeah. So, okay. Awesome. Because where that leads us is that, you know, even short of uh, buying any of your own hardware, if you sign up for AWS, you go into the, the console with whatever the free tier for train. I'd imagine it would, it's some amount of hours for training in the simulator. You can go through the Hello World tutorial for training your first uh, DeepRacer model. And actually, I'm pretty sure you can follow along sort of that like eagle eye view or that uh, like POV view of your car going around the track in the simulator. So for the, you know, lump sum of free 99, you can uh, get your hands wet with some of this uh, exciting reinforcement learning simulation. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we have a, a sort of an initial, if you're just new to the AWS console, you, we have sort of an initial primer that walks you through the, you know, the steps and some of the concepts of reinforcement learning. And, and then once you go through that, you're pretty much ready to go and ready to train your model. So, you know, it's the fastest way to train a, a machine, a reinforcement learning model on the, the AWS DeepRacer is. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Eddie. I, I couldn't have, I couldn't think of a better guest to take us through all of the new features that we're launching with this. Thank you, guys. This has been awesome. Yeah. So again, Eddie Kaleha, senior software engineer over on Amazon AI, helped, has been with the team back since the inception of DeepRacer and is uh, here today, told us a lot about Evo, showed us it in, 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 uh, in the console, gave us the walk around, uh, Eddie, one-stop shop for everything DeepRacer. I, I can't thank you enough. Well, thank you guys. This has been awesome. And, and thanks everybody for listening to me here for the last little bit. <laughs> awesome. Well, I know chat, I chat very much enjoyed it. They got, they, they really enjoyed getting to see, see us go hands on with it, but the show must go on here at AWS. What's next? Uh, we are on wrapping up our second session here, but we do have a new format for our third session. Quite familiar, but with some different faces. You're probably used to Rob and I leading each session, uh, but we've got something a little bit different here lined up for the third one. We are going to be going hands-on with AWS Copilot. And when we were thinking about people that would be the most effective hosts for this, we had to look no further than our own developer advocate team that lives on the containers team with Nathan Peck. We saw his name at the top of the blog post for announcing AWS Copilot, and I figured inviting him out would probably be the most effective way to tell the story of AWS Copilot for uh, developers that are used to using ECS and containers. I'm Nathan Peck. I'll be your host for this next segment. And today I'm joined by F.A. Caracas from the ECS Developer Experience team. So Hello, everyone. Today we're going to be talking about a uh, recent launch called AWS Copilot. And uh, if I understand correctly, this is an open source project, which was released on GitHub a few weeks ago, and it's already accumulated over 760 stars. So what exactly is this that folks are so excited about? 
Sure, yeah. So AWS Copilot is a new command line tool to help customers build, release, and operate containerized applications on AWS. We launched it on July 9th at the AWS Cloud Container Conference. It's like you said, it's developed by the Amazon ECS developer experience team. It's completely open source. You can find it on GitHub at uh, github.com slash AWS slash copilot-cli. Please give us any feedback, you know, re feature requests, any issues that you might come across. We'd love to hear from you. Awesome. So first of all, congrats on launch. Uh, now let's go through a few terms. I, I, you mentioned a few things. I want to make sure everybody in Twitch chat and listening in, maybe on LinkedIn or wherever else we're streaming, understands the terminology we're talking about. So you talked about command line app. Obviously, there's different types of applications that you might run. What exactly is command line in this case? So by command line, we mean this just like a tool. If you're familiar with the AWS CLI, for example, it's just like the AWS CLI, you would use Copilot on your terminal. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not going to be using this on the web console. I'm going to go to my terminal. And then nope. you mentioned uh, containerized application. What is this container we're talking about? I'm not talking about a box here, but what is the container? <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. So like you said, the co containerized application, it really has two terms, right? Container and application. And by container, what we mean is a technology that allows developers to take their code in their runtime engine, for example, Node.js, any dependencies that they might have and package them up into a container image. Then this container image can be run on any machine that's running Docker. So it's a super easy way of making sure that your software can run really on any machine. That's awesome. Yeah, I know in the past working at various startups and writing code, I often ran into issues where you know I, I wrote some code on my development laptop and then I handed it off to another developer and the code didn't run right or we tried to deploy it to a server in the cloud and it didn't run. And so we had to figure out, okay, well, how are we going to get our code to run reliably in every location that we want to run it? And containers was a solution that we, we, we came upon specifically because of what you said, which is that it allows you to package up all those applications of the code I'm writing, the program I'm using, the runtime to actually execute my code, and any other libraries I need. So uh, that's, that's huge. So with Copilot, so we, we know what the containerized application is. What's the problem that, that Copilot is solving when it comes to actually deploying this containerized application in the cloud? Sure. So first of all, Copilot provides an end-to-end -end experience for developers to both build as well as releasing, as well as operating your containerized applications on AWS. So when you think about the AWS landscape now, we have lots of great building blocks, right? We have the Amazon Elastic Container Registry to manage your container images. We have Amazon ECS, the Elastic Container Service for container orchestration. Make sure that your containers are always up and running. You can do auto-scaling, uh, lots of management stuff for your containers. And we have many options for databases, right? For example, Amazon DynamoDB. And developers right now, they have to do a lot of glue work, right? You need to figure out how do I connect an ECR repository with my ECS service? How do I connect my ECS service with my database? It's not about just doing this like glue work. We want to do that with best practices in mind, right? We want to make sure it's like cost effective, and it's reliable, it's secure. And Copilot takes that burden away from you. What we do is that we take as input a Docker file, and then you tell us what kind of architecture you want. For example, I want a load balance web service. I want to take this Docker file and just run it on AWS behind a load balancer. And Copilot will figure out all this glue work for you, will provision the infrastructure with best practices in mind. 
That sounds amazing. I know every time I start a new application and I'm thinking about what architecture I want to deploy, I'm always worried about, you know, did I accidentally leave a port open and like some hacker is going to get into my database? You know, did I, did I accidentally get my permissions model right? Maybe my, somebody's going to be able to get into my S3 bucket. So having something there like Copilot to help me design things properly and make sure I have my settings correct, that sounds amazing. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what happens next. So I, I use Copilot to deploy the application. Once it's deployed, what else can Copilot do for me? Yeah, so you know, by providing an end-to-end experience would mean exactly like you said, you know, your application as an application developer, you don't stop at just like building and modeling your infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And afterwards the service is up and running and you need to troubleshoot if the problem occurs, right? So Copilot is also there for your operational commands. So you don't have to context switch to a different tool. You can do both your infrastructure provisioning as well as operating your service through the same, the same CLI, through the same tool. So That's you awesome. can do, for example, like Copilot service uh, status or Copilot service logs to be able to view the health of your service or to be able to view the logs for your service. So, so what does Copilot do that's different from other infrastructure provisioning tools? Because you know, I, I've used different tools to deploy. I, I've, sometimes I go into the console, AWS console directly to build out my application. You know, I've used like Terraform, CloudFormation directly. How does Copilot compare to those experiences? Yeah, great question. I mean, we, like you said, we have so many tools out there, right, to be able to do infrastructure provisioning. But Copilot is not just an infrastructure provisioning tool, just we were serving like we were saying earlier, it also allows you to operate your service. So you could do like service status, service logs. But in terms of just infrastructure provisioning, Copilot under the hood uses CloudFormation. But if you were to use AWS CloudFormation directly, you will be starting at a blank template. So you would have to define every single infrastructure resource yourself. Instead with Copilot, you just get these pre-populated templates, right? Because we tell, as an input, you tell us, hey, I just want something behind a load balancer, or I want a service that's private that only other services in my application might want to access, and then we'll like populate the template with best practices in mind. When we compare it against the AWS Cloud Development Kit, the CDK, you know, CDK is also an abstraction on top of CloudFormation. But instead of defining your infrastructure resources in YAML, you would write in your preferred programming language, such as Python or TypeScript. But with Copilot, one of our differences is that we can provide deep integrations between your ECS services. For example, if I want to add multiple app- multiple services that are behind the load balancer, I can, with Copilot, that will automatically get added you know, to, to under the same load balancer. But if you were using CloudFormation or the CDK, you would need to think a little bit deeply about, I need to take this load balancer, place it in a separate CloudFormation stack, then take my services and place it under a different CloudFormation stack, make sure that they are wired up together sensibly. Uh, Copilot abstracts that away for you. We also recently announced uh, an integration between Docker and ECS. And that's a great like starting point if you are using Docker Compose. If you're really well familiar with Docker Compose, it really eases your life with getting started with ECS. But with Copilot, we provide some deep integrations between like other AWS services. For example, we provide nice way of integrating with DynamoDB or an S3 bucket. We can also set up an AWS code pipeline pipeline for you. Wow. So those who may be familiar with how we build services and offer new features at AWS, one of the things that we do 
before we actually define anything, before we start writing any code at all, is we like to create a set of tenets. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask with Copilot, what are these tenets or principles that are guiding how Copilot was built and how the experience was designed for these end users of Copilot? Yeah. Uh, so as a, we said earlier, the Copilot is open source. You can find it on GitHub. And in the repository, we have a file there named Charter. That's why you can do our design tenants. The first design tenant that we have for the CLI is that users think in terms of architecture and not of infrastructure. For example, developers that want to create a new microservice, they shouldn't really have to think about all the networking configuration. You might not even know what's a VPC, your subnet security groups, load balancer settings, or complex pipeline configurations. Instead, you know, as we as developers, when we're building a new application, we really like to think in terms of you know, black boxes, right? Like we'll say, okay, I want a microservice that's fronted by a load balancer and that will connect to a database, right? Yeah, and that's, when I'm designing a new application, the first thing I do is I go on that whiteboard and I put like a little box and I put like an arrow over to another box. You know, I'm not actually thinking about like the rules and like lower line exactly. configuration. I just think about this box connects to that box connects to that. <laughs> yeah, you don't think about the target group of how I'm going to configure that, right? So... That's exactly the type of input that we want to take with the CLI. With Copilot, you provide your Docker file so that you can create a container image from it. And then the second input that you provide us is what kind of service you want in your application. So if it's a load balance web service, we'll put that under behind a load balancer. Or if it's a backend uh, service, then it's going to be not public, so nobody from the internet will be able to access it, but your other services will be able to access it. The second design tenet that we have with the CLI is creating modern applications by default. And by modern applications, what we mean is really, you know, just like what you described earlier with the microservices and boxes is that you have, you typically tend to have more than one microservice in your application. So you will have multiple microservices. You might have some jobs. You might have some supporting resources like databases. And, uh, with the CLI, we ensure that all parts of your application are wired together securely and sensitively. So this is my favorite tenet of the CLI because you know what, what you were saying earlier is that I don't want to have to think about how to create the roles to be able to really access this database, right? So for example, when you run Copilot storage in it, we'll create either a DynamoDB table or a mystery bucket, and we'll automatically add permission for the ECS service to be able to read and write from that database as well as inject any environment variables that are needed for you to be able, from your source code itself, to be able to access the database. So we can provide this sort of deep integration between other AWS services with your continuous service. Our third tenant is delivering applications continuously. So while the AWS Copilot CLI can be used to manually deploy changes, so I can type Copilot deploy and it will just deploy to the environment, uh, we always help customers to move to a continuous integration and continuous delivery pipeline by managing, you know, and setting up pipelines. So we all know as developers how important it is to set up continuous delivery pipelines. It results in increase of software throughput, better software quality, as well as like happier devs on your teams, right? You don't have to create uh, approvals and like make sure you chase someone else, a manager to get an approval for a deployment. I remember some of the startups I worked at in the past, there was only one person who could do the deployment. Sometimes that was me. Sometimes it was <laughs> someone else. And then they would go off on vacation for the week and they'd be like, what, uh, 
we can't actually get any of our code onto servers right now because this person was the only one who had access to actually take the application that we had built and deploy it to the server. So that meant maybe there was a bug that would be impacting customers for a couple of days. And that's exactly. <laughs> yeah, we want to avoid that. We definitely don't want to be in that situation. So with Copilot, what you can do is that you can create multiple deployment environments very easily. You type Copilot MVNet, and you can say, hey, I want to create a test environment or a deployment environment. And each one of these environments can be in different AWS accounts or different regions. And then you type Copilot Pipeline in it saying that, hey, I want to wire now. You know, my first stage in my deployment will be the test environment, then a production environment, and we'll release all your services automatically. So that will create an AWS Copipeline pipeline for you. And you don't have to go and hack, you know, any release scripts yourself or wait for someone else, you know, to go and deploy your changes for you. And the last tenet that we have with the CLI is that operations is part of the workflow. So this is what we were trying to say earlier with the definition of what AWS Copilot does by providing an end-to-end -end experience. You know, provisioning, so far we've been talking about provisioning, modeling, you know, resources, infrastructure resources, but that's not the end of the story. We want to be able to help you troubleshoot and debug when things go wrong. So we provide commands to help monitor the health of your service as well as visualize the logs. I'm super curious what we can do there, right? Like if you have any ideas on how we can set up traces for you, maybe automatic uh, metrics and alarms and dashboards, we'd love to hear from you. Just create an issue on GitHub for us. And uh, we'd love to hear back. That's awesome. Uh, I see a few uh, questions in the, in the chat I wanted to highlight. One question is, yeah. is there any way to import Docker Compose file? Uh, you know, if, if somebody's already been using Docker Compose, What's their path from Docker Compose into AWS Copilot? So right now, there is no way for you to be able to import a, a Docker Compose file. But instead, you know, each in Docker Compose, you define individual services. You can still do that with Copilot. You would be running one by one for each one of the services that are available. Uh, if you're curious, you can alternatively check out the Docker ECS integration that was recently announced. Um, those will be the two paths that you can uh, Use with going from Docker Compose to ECS. Yeah, that makes sense. So we've been talking about Copilot a lot. I understand you have a demo you like to show us. I always like to get yep. hands on and actually see this code uh, running, see some uh, video of the terminal going. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's do it. Let's see what Copilot looks like. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. I think I should need to share my screen. Okay. All right, so, there we go. So I'll be giving an overview of how you would go by you know, using Copilot to deploy and manage a containerized application on Amazon ECS and AWS Fargate. Over here, I have a sample Git repository and boot app. I ran three so we can see all the files that's in my repo. Um, just for this demo, I have a very simple uh, application with three microservices. And I have an admin microservice you can see from the Docker file. It just renders an HTML page. I have an API microservice as well as site microservice. I've already run Copilot in it for each one of those. So I've deployed these services already with Copilot. And once you deploy everything, at the end, you'll see this Copilot directory. Don't worry, we're going to take every single step that I've done for this again. I'm just showing you the end result right now. So with, for example, under Copilot, you'll see three different directories for each one of your services with a manifest file under under them, and I'll give an explanation of what that is. And I've always already set up continuous delivery pipeline for 
my application. And you can tell that by the pipeline.yaml file that's in here. Now, from the root of my repo, I'm going to type copilot to see the help menu for the CLI. And you can tell that it's telling me that it helps me launch and manage applications on Amazon ECS and AWS Fargate. That's exactly what I want. We have a bunch of commands in the CLI, which are under different categories. For example, I love how well this is organized and documented. It's very clear to me right away. You know, I can see that I get started, I develop, I release, yeah. and yeah. I, I just kind of go through the flow from the top down to get my application running. <laughs> yeah, and I love the little emojis over here. <laughs> That's my favorite piece. <laughs> so right now, you know, like you were saying, the getting, we have a getting started category. That's if I'm brand new and I want to start an ECS application. Uh, the develop commands, you could use them to do both like evolving your application by adding additional microservices, or you can do some operational commands such as service log or service status here. Finally, we have two different options for releasing your services, right? I can set up a continuous delivery pipeline or I can do a manual deployment. And I can associate my services with additional AWS infrastructure with the add-ons commands. So for example, I can add an Amazon DynamoDB table or I can add an S3 bucket to my service. So what I'm gonna do from here now is get started with Copilot. So I'm gonna type Copilot in it. And the first thing that the CLI does, it welcomes me. It tells me that it's going to ask me a bunch of questions to help me start it with an application on an application on ECS. And then an application is just a collection of my containerized services that operate together. Since I already run Copilot uh, before uh, in this Git repository, it detected that I've created an application named Votap. The first question that it asked me is which type of service best represents your services architecture. And this is exactly what we're talking about earlier, with Nathan, about our first tenant being users think in terms of architecture and not of infrastructure. If I type question mark here, it tells me that the load balance web service is a public internet-facing HTTP server that's behind a load balancer. So this will be the architecture that I would use if I want a service that's accepting requests from the internet. Then I have a second option here that says uh, a backend service is a private non-internet-facing service. This will be the option that I would use if I want a database, uh, sorry, a service that's talking to a database that no one else from the internet would be able to access. So I'm going to choose a load balance web service for the demo. I'm going to name my service both site. And then the next input is the Docker file. So in my repository earlier, I showed that we had three different Docker files, each one for our microservices. So the CLI recognized the location of the Docker file. And then it prompted us which one we want to use for this microservice. In this situation, I want to use site Docker file. And this will help us build the container image and then have that container up and running on Amazon ECS and finally. Looks like it created the infrastructure needed for the application. It says that it wrote something called the manifest file at this particular location. So we're going to take a look into that next. It created the ECI repositories. We're all good for local development. Next step is to deploy this. So we actually have our service up and running. So I'm going to say yes to this. And while the deployment is happening, I'm going to switch over to my next step so we can view what this manifest is all about. Let's take a look at what that looks like. I just opened up the file. So for each one of my microservices would get its own manifest file. And the manifest file is really our architecture as code. Right? So this is our abstraction on top of CloudFormation that would provide you the, the most common knobs, the most common configuration that you might need for a load balance web service. For example, we have the location of the Docker file, 
to have which port is exposed, and Copilot will parse your Docker file to be able to detect if you have specific instructions, such as an exposed instruction for your port, or if you have a health check instruction, and will automatically fill those values in the manifest for you. Can, can I just interrupt for a second yeah. and say that uh, th this manifest is is amazing. Like when I, when I look at this, I've seen a lot of application configurations, you know, over the years, and a lot of them they get really complicated. You have, you know, these these JSON these uh, uh, files that have all the uh, semicolons, and quotes, and, and you know all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. And what I'm seeing here is I'm seeing it has do documented comments in there explaining what everything is. And just the settings themselves are very simple. I see like CPU, memory count, you know, stuff that I can kind of understand. And with the explanations there, like this looks like a way simpler way for me to configure my application without having to learn a lot of like basically magic keywords and magic settings that, that are in some really complex configuration format. Yeah, exactly. We try to really like instill the essence of what a load balanced web service might look like. So you have your container settings with CPU and memory. You have your count, which is just the number of tasks that you might be running for your service. And here are like the configuration for your load balancer. This is the path that the load balancer should listen on and forward requests to your service. Or you can set up a health check setting uh, from the load balancer. We have some more advanced configuration at the bottom. So you can inject environment variables, or if you have any secret that is stored on AWS Systems Manager Parameter Store, you can inject them also as environment variables to your service. At the bottom, we have some environment overrides. So any of the values that you see over here, you can override them per environment. So you can imagine in this situation, we create everything with minimal settings, so it doesn't cost too much. Um, but it, we can imagine that the production environment, you want your service to be reliable. So instead of a count of one, you could set a for prod, set a count of three. So my service is reliable. Okay. So I'm going to exist the manifest. That's what the manifest does. Uh, you can modify this and then do another deployment or you could just you know, commit this change and then do a git push if you have a pipeline set up and that will trigger you know, it will automatically like increase the count of your uh, of the task in your service to three for example if i go back to the cli you can see that it says that okay environment tests already exist in my application world app that's because I've already run this command before and it created all this networking infrastructure like the VPC, the ECS cluster, the ECR repositories. Uh, so Copilot handles that for me. And then the next step that it, it started doing is that it uh, built the container image from the location of my uh, of the Docker file. And then it pushed that onto ECR. It says that it pushed it and now it's deploying the service itself. So while the deployment is happening, now I'm going to put my operator hat on. I'm going to switch from being like a builder, right? And I want to see the status of my service. So I can type Copilot service and underneath it, I can see that there is a show and a status command. These seem relevant to me. So I'm going to type Copilot service status. And the first thing that the CLI will prompt me is, okay, which service and environment combination you want to show, right? So. I've already deployed my three microservices to two different deployment environments, a test environment, as well as a production environment. And I want to choose to visualize the service status for my both sites service in a test environment. So I'm going to choose this option and boom, it tells me that, okay, looks like the deployment is over. Actually, I have one other one task that's running. Everything is good to go. Last deployment was in a month ago. The service, the status is running. 
And if you have a, any alarms set up already for the service, in this situation, I had set some alarms up. You can see the alarms and the status of the alarms through Copilot service status. So since the deployment is almost over, that means that this image should also go away pretty soon. But just to show that we really don't have any magic with the CLI, everything, every single step that Copilot takes, every single infrastructure is provisioned through cloud formation. So for example, this would be the stack for my vote site service that's in the vote app application in the test environment. And you can see all the resources that we create for you that you don't have to worry about. It's just service discovery for private communication, you know, setting up all this networking configuration between the load balancer and your ECS service. You should see the log group, the ECS service itself. Uh, the task definition, as well as permissions with your task role, right? You don't have to worry about any of those. And I just saw earlier before switching to CloudFormation that the deployment is done and even tells me at the end, okay, this is where you can access your service. It gives us the URL. So I'm going to quickly copy this over back to my browser. Paste. Boom. It says, hello from the roadside service. The service is up and running. So, so this um, is this is live, right? What happens if everybody in chat yeah. gets this uh, URL? <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> we have only uh, one task running with minimal CPU and memory, so please be gentle. Yeah. <laughs> but how, how would I go about uh, scaling it up if I if I did want to handle you know all two thousand plus people in chat accessing this website at once? I would do yeah, that through that yeah. manifest file, right? Exactly. So let's do that. So just like to demo how that would look like, I would go to both side, the manifest. I would say. Okay, in this situation, maybe I want, you know, 1024, 1024, and I want to count a tree. And that should definitely be enough for everybody in chat to be able to, like, handle that. Um, <laughs> that and I could do, let me type Copilot again to see the help menu. And, you know, for releasing, we have two different options. I could do Copilot deploy to do a manual deployment, for example, right? So let me type Copilot deploy. I'll take both sites again. I'll say, okay, now deploy with my new manifest to the test environment, and it will start the deployment. I'm just going to do that for now, so we don't have to wait for another deployment to happen. Yeah, yeah that's fine. But that's fine. <laughs> I'll show like but some other commands that are available. Yeah, I can before. see, I can see how that's very easy, though. You know, if I was in a situation where I was running a website and I was getting more traffic than I expected, it's very easy for me to just change these settings and run Copilot deploy again. And I'm scaled up now. You know, I can handle thousands of people hitting my website if I if I needed need to handle that. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, if you forget any of the settings that like Copilot showed earlier, such as the URL of your service, right? I can type Copilot service show, and then I'll choose my service, and that will give me my configuration. Right? So it will say, okay, uh, right now you have. The vote site service is a load balance web service. It's deployed in two different environments. Both have the exact same configuration here with more configurations. And these are the routes that you can access the service. So the load balancer endpoints. And you can tell that we have two different load balancer, each one for a different environment. The test environment gets its own load balancer. Now production environment gets its own load balancer. We set up service discovery by default for you so that the service can be accessed privately through other services in your application. And we inject some of the environment variables that you might find useful, such as the DNS name for the load balancer, as well as the service discovery endpoint, so you can start leveraging this namespace from your application code. 
So what I'm going to do now is show some of the commands that's available to us to evolve our, our application, right? If I want to add a new service to vote app, I can run, let me show Copilot service again. I can do Copilot service in it. In this situation, let's say I want to add an API that's communicating with a database. So I will choose a backend service. I'll name this vote API and pick my Docker file again. And then it will create the necessary infrastructure here. So it will say that, okay, the manifest is ready. You're good to go. If you want to deploy it, just run Copilot deploy. And that's all you need to do. If you want to create a new deployment environment, and right now we have both test and prod PDX, I can type Copilot env, and that tells me that these commands are for environments, and then environments are deployment stages that are shared between services. So I can type Copilot env in it, and I can say, for example, I want prod IAD, and then I choose which name profile I want to use for my new deployment environment. So with this, I can choose, for example, prod, and that will deploy to a different AWS account as well as a different region. And then you will get a new deployment stage available. Now with Nathan, we showed earlier how we can do copilot deploy to manually deploy our change. But another command that was available to us was copilot pipeline. So this is how I would set up my continuous delivery pipeline and satisfy our third design tenant of the CLI. So if I go to Copilot Pipeline to see which commands are available for me, I can initialize a new one, I can update my pipeline, delete it, see the status of my pipeline, show some configuration settings of my pipeline, and let's show how we would set up a new pipeline. So I would type Copilot Pipeline in it, and then you choose the order of deployment for your environment. So I'm gonna say, I want to first deploy to a test environment, then I want to deploy to production, this is the location of my GitHub repository. Uh, so the CLI detected that. And then it asks me for the personal access token to access this repository so that it, the pipeline can pull the code changes and then deploy them. I'm going to quickly copy my access token, paste. I just want to say good job with not accidentally leaking your uh, <laughs> token to uh, Twitch. Yeah. yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> it was practice. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, if we take a look at the pipeline file, you can see that it's a very like minimal configuration that you would need for a continuous delivery pipeline. It says that the source is on Git, is a GitHub repository. This is the name of the repository. This is the branch that we should be using for doing our releases. And these are the order of our deployment environments. First, we're going to deploy to test and then to production. If we do pipeline update from here, let me show you quickly how the end result looks like. So I'll switch over to the code pipeline tab. Let me go on the pipelines. And this would be the pipeline that gets generated. So the first stage is going to be the source stage that's just going to pull the changes from your GitHub repository. Then in the build stage, we're going to build each one of the container images for each one of your microservices. So for admin, for API as well as for the site microservice. Then we're going to start our deployment. So first to the test environment and then to the production environment. Each one of them will create a different cloud formation stack for your microservices. And you know, you don't have to go to the console to be able to visualize the status of your pipeline. You can always stay within your terminal. You just type copilot pipeline status and you get to see what the pipeline looks like.
you know, this transition I enabled, my previous deploy deployment was successful. So, you know, just to recap, right? Like we've seen how to get started with the CLI, with the copilot you know, getting started commands. We saw how to operate with the copilot service status command, service show. I didn't show copilot service logs, so we can do that with it. And I can choose, yep, the vote site service in the test environment, and that will start displaying your logs. So that would be the operational commands that are available to us. We show how we can set up a continuous delivery pipeline by using Copilot Envinit as well as Copilot Pipeline Envinit. That's roughly what I had for the demo. That's, that's, a, that's, that's amazing. I, I just want to say this is a full toolkit. Uh, you know, this is, this is a, a toolkit that probably a large company, you know, they would probably build from scratch, perhaps, in order to be able to operate with multiple services. And here, I don't have to build this from scratch. It's already there. It's already released. It's maintained by Amazon and AWS. Obviously, I see there's a lot of issues on there. Clearly, I imagine the team is probably looking for suggestions and things to work on from those issues. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, so, um, you know, just... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to ask, uh, what can you say about what's next? You know, what's oh, coming down the line for Copilot? Great question. So, you know, we had many requests for being able to, instead of us creating a VPC and all this like networking configuration, such as the subnets, side ranges in your VPC, people have already existing you know, VPCs and they just want to use that with Copilot. So we're actively working on that right now. So if you go to issues, issue number 740 is request. We can expect minimal patterns to be added to the CLI, right? Right now we have two patterns that are available the load balance web service pattern, as well as a backend service pattern. We're working on adding a scheduled service pattern so that you know, on a daily basis, a scheduled task is triggered or something like that. And then, you know, we would love to hear from you for what more we can do in the operational space. So what would you be looking for besides log and being able to see the status of your service? I see we got a few more stars on the uh, repo just during this uh, session. So it's exciting to see more people checking it out and feel free to, to test it out and leave a comment in the issues. If you run into anything that you'd like to see us improve, we're always looking for more stuff to work on, obviously. That's very cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is the link to our documentation. If you go to the readme and we have also instructions on how to install the CLI under the installing section. So we're just installing with Brew. Okay, so it's very, very easy to get started with installing Copilot on your own development machine and uh, encourage you to uh, do so and check it out. Uh, is there anything else that you want to tell the audience or any questions we can... Uh, I see one question from the audience. Will Copilot support PowerShell? I imagine that's asking about a Windows environment then. So it's actually a question I have seen a couple times uh, from people asking, will, will Copilot support Windows? Yeah, so we have a Windows binary right now in our, if you go to the releases for the CLI, but our current recommendation is that we'd prefer if you would use the Linux or the macOS binary. Uh, these are, we have heavily tested both of these binaries. So if you can use the Linux subsystem for Windows and then install the Linux binary, that would be the preferred route. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Cool. Well, thanks a lot for showing us uh, this demo. And, and thanks for uh, joining. 
yeah, I'm excited about Copilot and seeing uh, where it goes and what kind of applications people develop with it. Where yeah, can same. the where can the audience uh, reach out to uh, chat with you more afterward if they have uh, more questions? Yeah, so we are super active on you know in the Copilot repository. So if you got us an issue, we'll get back to you very quickly. Alternatively, we also have in the readme uh, you can see that there is a chat button over here, so you can also chat with us live on Gitter. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, people will be able to ask questions live to the team if they yeah. have any questions about Copilot. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. well, thanks a lot for uh, doing this demo and uh, talking about Copilot. And thanks, uh, Nathan. We'll uh, move on to the uh, next uh, segment. I feel like one of those reviewers that is back again reviewing a product that they get on a monthly or a yearly basis where it's like 2020 is the best and biggest year for X. Except it's Adamus, what's next? Where you always say, ah, this is the biggest episode yet. And, you know, I, <laughs> I hesitate to say this, but I think this will probably be one of the hardest to beat <laughs> due to sort of the, 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 the gravity of the launch of IBS, being able to, you know, have Emmett, have Marty on, you know, th this was a great episode, but, you know, Rob, we're three hours in. Oh, man. <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost impossible to summarize all the excitement. It hasn't felt like three hours, honestly. We've been having so much fun. We started off with the announcement for IVS, Interactive Video Service, and what we can do there is basically take all of the infrastructure improvements we've made to Twitch over time and package it up as a service so that you can publish your video stream, uh, have really low latency to all sorts of um, mechanisms of distribution, and an SDK that allows you to integrate that with your native apps, your web apps, just some really exciting stuff. I, I really can't do it justice. you got to check it out. Yeah, I mean the. I, I feel like we've we've you promise something that's exciting, and then you make it even more exciting each time you talk about it. Where it's like, oh yeah, it is easy to integrate. Ah yes, in an hour you can have your own live video. Ah yes, uh, in just two minutes you can have your own channel and have all the infrastructure provided. And like being able to see that demo in the console of just three clicks or you know a single SDK call, spin up a channel and return a set of credentials to a user. And, and just have everything else abstracted away. Like how how far we've come from literally right before IBS, right? We're not talking about improvements over, you know, what things were like a decade ago. But if you're using something like IBS, or I shouldn't even say something like IBS, because I can't point to anything that is quite similar to IBS. It is just light years ahead with respect to the experience and the simplicity that it offers for developers. You know, right after this call, you can, or, or this, this, uh, this show, if, if people haven't already, you can go and fork some of those samples and just plug in your own credentials and, and get started building your own streaming platform. Like that, those are words we could not have even hoped to utter without, you know, cracking ourselves up because of the, 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 the gravity of such a task um, just a, just yeah. a week or two ago. Yeah. And, and really, like, if you, if you think about the technology here, this is one of those things that almost seems unremarkable. If you don't quite grok what it, the magnitude of the problems that it's solving it seems kind of unremarkable, but it's one of these steps that subtly, you know, people in Twitch chat right now who see this announcement, they're going to go away and they're going to start hacking on this. And in a couple months, a couple of years, we're going to start seeing the, the fruits of that work. And we're going to see innovation. We're going to see experimentation. We mentioned some of the really cool integrations that you can do with the metadata API. We're going to start seeing that, right? We're going to start seeing people pushing the envelope for what it means to have this kind of interactive, live, rich experience online. And I think that's that's just so exciting to me. I, I really, but but I think we we've, we've been gushing over ISV. I'm sorry, I, I, yes, I always get the the acronyms mixed up. 
but I do think that we need to do, we need to be fair to the other services. We had some, some really exciting announcements. And what I really like about that, that's consequently one of the cool things that, about this show, that we can cover things that are so different from one another, right? So we go from kind of live video streaming infrastructure to Deep Racer Evo. Nick, you want to talk about Deep Racer Evo? Yeah, uh, totally. I mean, I know there's like a racing sim category on Twitch, but I don't know if there's an autonomous driving category or IRL maybe. I don't know, what have you. But the point being, you know, Deep Racer is an autonomous vehicle. And and while that sounds super daunting to try and even begin using, it, it is all bundled as a, as a service for training and deploying a model to this to this vehicle for people who may have never used machine learning before. It's largely this educational tool that has a fun, exhilarating, competitive component to it in a virtual league. If you ever come down to an AWS summit in your local region, there's, a, there's going to be a track there. You can get started. We'll have pit crew members there. And so this has been so great for the past, I think, since 2018 when Deep Racer initially was announced and rolled out. And, and the announcement we talked about today was Deep Racer Evo sort of deep racer bigger and better i guess that's the theme of this show right it's just these things that people know and love but bigger and better and and when you haven't heard about it already it's something that was something you could have even imagined uh, and with deep racer evo use depth depth detection um lidar sensors we saw that when eddie eddie actually had the deep racer evo he pulled the shell off and we saw the spinning lidar sensor on top in addition to the typical single camera depth perception is, is calculated by having those two cameras. It looks like a set of eyes on the front of, on the front of the car. And we were able to see sort of what it looks like to actually load that model on it and, and see out of the front of the deep racer that he had sitting on his uh, dining room table. So yeah, to jump from a fully managed media streaming service or video streaming service with the CEO of Twitch to then, you know, Eddie, this, this senior software engineer over on the, uh, the Amazon AI team who, who's building services to help teach machine learning developers how to with machine learning through self-driving cars. And then third, we had, uh, you know, Nathan and F.A. talking about uh, a container a launch for, for you know, the, the co-pilot for, for ECS. <laughs> this is really quite the variety show we have going on here. I, if there was not an AWS logo at the bottom, I don't quite know how we would string all these things together. But I think that's a great segue into this final segment that we traditionally do on this show, right? Absolutely. And I think we have the disembodied spirit of Nathan Peck still with us <laughs> online. Nathan, could you try and say something? Yes, I am here. Uh, I don't have a video slot on the screen, but yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So this last section, just to kind of fill Twitch in, we have a fun little game that we play at the end of every episode of What's Next. And what we do is take all the announcements and we mix them together as though they were secret ingredients on an episode of Iron Chef. The idea oh, is how can we combine these to build the most <laughs> interesting, wacky, silly, whatever service. And we usually like to put our, our special guest on the, on the hot seat here. So Nathan, your, your secret ingredients are IVS, DeepRacer Evo, and Copilot. All right. I got a great idea. Okay. I didn't even have to think about this too, too uh, long because it just all came to me. So IVS is all about interactive video stream, right? And uh, we saw in the demo that you can have these controls or like polls pop up on screen. And I know that Twitch loves to play games via Twitch chat. To me, the clear thing is it'll be a, a live stream of what the Evo Racer actually sees from its perspective. And the Evo Racer will pop up poll on screen to ask, you know, do I go forward? Do I go right? Do I go left? And uh, that web application that actually deploys the IPS stream and the polling system 
would uh, be deployed using Copilot. So we can combine all three of these launches together and make a uh, really cool automatic Twitch trains a Evo racer model. I you made this too easy for us. That was, that was great. I mean, I was going to joke at, at, during one of the, during the deep race session. I was like, yeah, games. Uh, when are we getting Twitch plays deep racer? But with, with what you just described, that would quite literally be the architecture diagram for that. Well, you know, that's the thing. Like th these uh, technologies that we're talking about are so easy to integrate and so powerful that you can build this awesome stuff that never would have been possible before. And you can build it fast too. Like we could probably throw this together in like a day or two. Maybe we should. Sounds, uh, yeah, sounds like uh, another, sounds like like another a, show. <laughs> sounds like a live, live coding stream that needs to happen. <laughs> Nick, you think you can improve on that idea? I, I mean, I don't know where I could. Like that's. I, I feel like I've been done up on my own segment here by our by our guest that we just sprung our guest host Nathan that we just sprung this on minutes ago. So I don't think that's, I didn't even know this was coming. So <laughs> I mean, he was so unprepared that he didn't. We didn't even have a video uh, tile for him here on this segment, but he still killed it. I'm trying to think if there's a way I can improve it, but it's like it's almost it's not only a seamless integration, but it's almost like there's very few other moving parts you'd even need to to make that possible, right? Like your front end of your application would literally be your streaming platform, right? So just like a, you know, any basic web app. And then the, 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 app, the web app that's going to interface with your, with, your, with your vehicle would be containerized and deployed through Copilot. So, so quite literally, the only thing you'd have to slap on there is some sort of basic front end to host the, you know, to host the, uh, the IBS stream and, and handle user input. But um, <laughs> I feel like this is the most complete application and i would have never guessed it based on the services we had slated for this episode <laughs> well it's all inspired by uh twitch chat talking and asking all those questions about uh the evo racer and like can you make it go faster can you <laughs> do this or that yeah again chat was chat was great today lots of lots of great ideas i, I know we always say on the show like hey we're bringing service team members on here let them know your unadulterated thoughts the ridiculous ideas because that's how things like Deep Racer started, right? And so, you know, we were, it's no holds barred when we're trying to consider what the, what the next big thing could be here at AWS. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I have nothing to add to that. I cannot top that, that, uh, that entry, Nathan. Yeah, well, Thanks. we're stumped. Nathan, like for, 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 for a barometer here, usually Rob and I, like one of us will integrate tie two servers together and we pass it off to the other person to tie in the third. And, and you just, you just, did us up so you know maybe we'll have to bring you on just for this end segment again or we'll have to have uh, nathan's picks and we'll, we'll give you it in advance and, and compare our answers like an envelope right like the oscars we'll 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 open it up and be like and nathan said <laughs> we'll, we'll figure it out but this whole segment this last segment evolves like each each episode i feel like we, we uh while we're on that holding screen we go like hey so uh what if we did this here at the end too and uh it, it just gets better and better each week so ah oh, awesome Again, AWS What's Next live show covering the latest launches here from Amazon Web Services, Amazon IBS Interactive Video Service, AWS DeepRacer Evo, and then lastly, we got to see AWS Copilot. Three very different launches, media services, uh, autonomous driving and machine learning education, and containerization. But I think it all tied together pretty well. And, and for those of you in the audience that stayed through the entirety of the time, uh, I hope you enjoyed, you know, I, I, in the same way we do this Iron Chef 
exit at the end and try and imagine what application would tie all these together. I, I, I sometimes wonder who in the world would be the perfect developer that would be like, oh, yes, these are the three services I wanted to hear about today. But, you know, I, I see some familiar names that have, have stuck through in the chat. So, so I hope you enjoyed. If you have any feedback on the show, things you would improve, things you want to see, things you liked today that you'd like to see more of, like on our side, uh, we loved having Nathan as, as a guest host here. I know you, you can't see him, but but that, that was a lot of fun. And and uh, Nathan, Nathan was able to cover a bunch of stuff that Rob and I may not have been able to with containers. So maybe we'll bring that back to the show uh, in a different capacity in future episodes. So follow on Twitter. Rob and I, we have our links in the chat. There will be a video on demand of this, uh, both on Twitch, but also on YouTube. We'll have a playlist link there as well, where you can follow along and see all episodes uploaded on there. Um, and there's also a podcast. We're on most major podcasting platforms. We'll drop some links there. Uh, I'll leave it on the uh, final screen. You'll Spotify and uh, Apple Music, I'm pretty sure at the very least. There's, there's a few others as well. But Rob, any any closing thoughts on, on quite literally the largest episode of uh, What's Next Yet? Just that our next episode is on August 7th, I believe, noon Pacific. So mark your calendars. Yes, August 7th. We, we do the show every two weeks or as closely to that cadence as we can. There's lots of exciting launches. <laughs> if we could get any closer to the launches and stream day of, we would. But, uh, you know, hard to coordinate with a lot of moving pieces there. But yeah, I had a blast uh, chat. I, I know I heard some great things there and um, I'm looking forward to the next episode in two weeks. So uh, without further ado, Twitch, we're signing off for today. If you enjoyed this content and you're not already following, follow along at twitch.tv slash AWS, the channel you're watching on right now, or you're on LinkedIn and you're not on Twitch, in which case follow along. You'll also get notifications there. But uh, yeah, I, I think that's going to about do it. I'm really happy with this episode uh, and I'm excited for the ideas that I have for future episodes as well. But happy Friday, everybody. Have a great relaxing weekend and we hope to see you back here in about two weeks. Bye, everyone. Take it easy. Have a good one, everyone.